In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1562 to 1575. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1562. Greetings, ladies and managers, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales, Tales from Outer, Outer Space. Space. Hope you enjoy. Story number one Blood and Water, written by Wanago Loco. It was 12 Federation standard years ago when the old machines awakened at the edge of space. They had been relatively dormant since they had been discovered some 400 years ago, only showing activity when someone probed deeply into their space. By relatively, I mean dead silent until there was an intruder in their space. Then every platform, installation, and drone ship would be activated until the transgressors were eliminated. Then they would immediately return to their slumber. For over 400 years, the galactic community at large simply knew to avoid the space in the stars. They were to be left untouched until someone developed a technology capable of overcoming them. The Frangilli people may have reached that point in the next century, their scientific progress significantly beyond most of us on the council. But 12 years ago, for reasons unknown, they woke entirely and they were out for blood. Whose blood specifically? We don't know. Our best minds are still working to process the bulk of the data files the machines ran on. We do know that they came for us first, simply because we were the closest to their space. Whether they would have continued to move into your systems had they ended ours, we cannot say with certainty. But that isn't all that important. What is important was we were outmatched, the machines that we have record of outnumbered our equivalent forces 113.7 to 1. The only reason we weren't entirely obliterated in the first weeks was because whoever created the machines never equipped them with FDL capability. The fact that they only traveled at .99999C meant that they came in a much more spaced out fashion. This was especially important, as in outright engagements, we were losing an average of 3.76 ships of equivalent class to their one. When the first of our systems were attacked, our leaders immediately sent requests for aid to this Federation Council. We were told that it would be put forth for debate on the floor and to sit tight. Help was only a vote away. But to get to the vote, it had to pass through these separate subcommittees, be reviewed by a panel of scientific and military advisors, filed out in triplicate, and likely buried in soft peat for three months. After three weeks of desperate defense, and already losing half of the colony worlds in the first system, our first outside help arrived. And it wasn't from a Federation species. No, our first aid came from a species who had only cracked FTL a decade ago and, as such, were still in the exploratory phase of whether they should be allowed to receive an application for the Federation membership. Three weeks into our most desperate struggle in history, a human cargo freighter full of aid supplies and two escorting frigates, who were now apparently human mercenaries, arrived in system. We didn't know it at first, but human space is two weeks from that system with their current FTL capabilities. Upon entering our space, the mercenaries immediately requested to be tied into our battle network. Two frigates, who at best were two decades of technology behind our own, was but a drop in the proverbial ocean. Command patched them in anyway, and the frigates joined our combat formation. 
interestingly, without any mention of payment. The freighter, meanwhile, began offloading food, medicine, and metals that we could use to patch up our ships, and they offered to take a board and hold full of evacuees to the world's deeper into Federation space. The generosity of a private entity was surprising, but it realistically meant very little in the grand scheme of things. They soon departed with 11,000 women and children to the homeworld, and as the FTL pulse flashed out of the system, we again resolved ourselves to being alone again in our fight, minus two anemic frigates. Then, to our surprise, only an hour later another group of human ships entered. This time, they appeared to be three mining barges hastily refitted into mobile weapons platforms. Half an hour after that, a swarm of 78 personal craft converted into ragtag fighters patched themselves in. Then shortly after, five more relief freighters jumped into system. This pattern continued for days in ever-increasing numbers. Retrofitted civilian craft, freighters, and mercenaries flooded into our system, forming a ragtag battle groups that immediately jumped into combat. We later determined that the combat lifespan of these early volunteers would only be measured in hours, and they still kept coming. Three days after the first fighter had first official military ships arrived, two carriers, six cruisers, and a dozen frigates, and twenty-eight corvettes. Two hours later, a fleet double that arrived. Within six hours of the first fleet's arrival, there were over a thousand military combat craft in system, not including tenders or eighteen ships they had already lost in combat in that time. Humanity had sent over two-thirds of their combined space-capable forces from eleven separate governments in their only two colonized systems, and the various admirals promised more were being fabricated to send the literal billions of volunteers flooding their recruitment center, billions, counselors over the course of six years of fighting the machines humanity sent 1.6 billion men and women across the known galaxy to fight on the front line. In the three years before this council was finally ready to take a substantial action, the humans had already sacrificed 480 million men and women in defense of my people. By the end of the war, only around 400 million were able to return home. Do you realize the context of this? Of course you do, otherwise I wouldn't be here. With 1.2 billion deaths, humanity had given up a full 5% of their population. By the sheer tonnage of ships and aid they had sent us, they had effectively bankrupted their peoples, and all they asked of us was that our findings from the machines be shared with them. Humanity was bleeding itself dry to be cannon fodder, to give us a chance to destroy the machines. If they hadn't come to our aid in those first three years, we would have lost every system in our possession and the machines would have likely engaging Frank Gilly space by year two. And all they wanted back was to be included in our research findings. Really, that's what their government wanted. All humanity wanted was our friendship. Now, I stand here before this council to oppose a vote for turning human space into Confederate protectorate. Let's, as the humans say, drop the bullcrap. This is an indentureship contract. You cowardly, dung-heap scavenger bastards saw that humanity had crippled itself and decided to litigate them into what is essentially... slavery. For once, I thank whatever divine powers that be that your bureaucratic and tactical instrument systems take so long to process. 
that it is also why each of you has a Kormani pulse rifle pressed into the back of your heads, courtesy of the time you gave us to prepare this little coup. So why are we sticking our girls so far out for the humans? Tell me, have any of you heard one of my people say something akin to, blood is thicker than water? Come on, I know you must have at some point. It is actually a short and bastardized from a longer phrase that I will get to in a moment. What's remarkable is that both humanity and the Komani developed a nearly identical phrase along these lines early in our respective histories. The full Komani version of the phrase is, The blood of the honor-bound is thicker than the waters of the spawning pool. I trust the phrase is self-explanatory. Humanity has paid its side of the honor-bound and veritable oceans of their blood, their sweat, their wealth, and their tears. And no being brings harm to the Gamani's bond brother without their blood spilt in the river. Now, counselors, shall we continue with the vote? I am certain I know the end result. I would be ashamed to die these lovely chambers with so much of your particular shades of red. End of story. Story number two. How many of them can we make die? Written by British Tea Company. From just a rough glance, the scouts said the orcs have us outnumbered five to one. Doing some counting, it looks like most of their ranks are goblins. What about the big ones? I'd given maybe one quarter of their army. Still enough to be a threat. Then the battle would have been even. There was a haughtiness in the human king's voice as he rode with his son around their camp. A legion of knights in midnight-clad geared themselves for the coming battle, as swords and lances were sharpened, and horses were led to their respective owners. I would say that we would even win that, surely. It'd take one of the knights for ten of their rabble any day, the human prince commented as he accompanied his father through the camp. I've already lost count of how many goblins I've crushed underneath my boot. We've already won the battle, son. Any victory is determined before even the first arrow has been fired. Look in front of us. What do you see in that field? No cover. No hiding spots. It is going to be a bloody charge. Exactly. And who exactly is going to win the charge? The side with more horses on their side with more people. Well, uh, that's hard to say, don't you think? When we know little about the enemy's capability... I would say the outcome of the battle isn't quite set. At least, that's the answer I would give to avoid you calling me out for my arrogance. The king chuckled. You're right, you are. One to five against an orc horde. I'm not betting a man, so I wouldn't chance it. But let me let you in a little dirty secret. We'll have more horses and more men for this battle. Oh? As any victory is claimed before the battle, let me tell you exactly why. The scout you asked for the numbers, glance. Well, he already performed a great service for our army with about twenty good men on the previous night. The prince paused for a moment to contemplate his father's meaning, before the truth dawned, satisfying him. Poison, wasn't it? Very good, my son. Yes, poison. He told me that they managed to get over half the supplies with their brew. So tell me, how much of your army do you think we laid low without even unsheathing our blades? Half. A third? Probably a number that has left us more than them. You're a devil, father, the prince said with a smile. His father grinned back with a barbarous glare. 
If I wasn't, I wouldn't be king of these black gods. Now then, boy, let's see how many orcish heads we can take for our batters. If they seek to bloody our noses, then I will damn well break their necks in return. I would like to see how many of them that we can make die today. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1563 Story number one. The Secret Report Within the Federation, written by Katani77. Classification, top secret. Subject, human combat ability versus Federation military members. Introduction. With the Terran, see also humans or homo sapiens species. Introduction to the galactic politic. It became necessary to evaluate their combat preparedness in the event of another Andromedan incursion. It is well known that the Andromedans annihilated all life not their own kin in their home galaxy, and have begun attempting to overtake the Milky Way, as the Terrans call it. And we have obliged since this report was published due to the popularity. Henceforth, the name's Arasa Galaxy has been considered to be depreciated by the Federation of the Eurasian Civilization has been considered to be deprecated by the Federation, as the Eurasian civilization has been lost to time some billion years ago. We've been able to match the Andromedan force given a 2 to 1 ratio of force presence, but the sizes of fleets coming from Andromeda, also the Terran designation, have been increasing. See also the Himeroan galaxies, fall by Scrivener Albanon of the Atraxi. We were hoping that humanity, being a predatory species, would assist as the Daru, the Chantari, the Firthwine, and the Sun to Rule Republic's forces had been in the past. What was discovered was far more than we had ever dreamed. Action excerpt. Human trials. Subject, Justin McCaffrey of Terra Prime, henceforth called Earth, as is their custom. Have you ever kindled a pulse rifle, Justine? Justin, it's... Sir, I'm only a sergeant in the Earth Army. Uh, not really the young types I figured you recruiting for. Uh, uh, to, to be honest, I, I was running a, a theme park before I, I was drafted for this. Do you not want to be a human? The bile from this disdain was of a hairless ape was palpable, even through the Universal Translator. No, <laughs> but no one ever wants to be in a war. I have seen what the Andromedans have done. I'm with you on that front. Can we get the test over with? We asked your military forces for the best of what they had to offer. We showed them the ferocity and ingenuity of all the military races in the Federation. We told them to send only two who they felt could best us. The judge looked at Justin up and down with a look the translator says is mockery. They send us a conscripted white-collar middle manager who doesn't even seem to want to be here. All right. Let the test begin. After action report. 35 members of the Federation Special Forces were defeated by Subject Justin. No perceived injury to his body. Eyewitness accounts rate a human visible acuity to three times galactic standard. This means that the Vesalux systems and common camouflage were easily viewed by them. They have assisted in increasing basic security. Speed, reflexes, accuracy, strength and marksmanship are off the known charts. Suggested sorte deployment is one human conscript to every 20 Andromedans. Extrapolated deployment is one human special forces to every thousand Andromedans or more. Other specialities in naval and air superiority have not been tested. 
We have also learned that the humans not only are far broader electromagnetic sensitivity, but also tactile, audible, and olfactory abilities higher than most species as well. Please note that the Daru smelling like cut grass and the Chinari smelling like wet dog is not meant as an offense. As humans are highly adapted to categorize smells as memetic function, despite not being as sensitive as other species on their planet. See also Terran Canine for future military consideration, as the humans have already implemented. End of story. Story number two. Space Doggos, written by Average Cake Enjoyer. The beast roared mightily as it swept its claws out as the shaking mass of crew members. The sharp nails barely missing the group as they dove in all directions in an attempt to escape the wrath of the monster. Picking themselves up off the floor, they huddled back together in a shoddy group, raising their improvised weapons towards the creature in self-defense. Namely, mess trays and small kitchen knives they had got from the kitchen. The beast only bared its sharp fangs back in defiance. How in the seven gods' name did that thing breach containment? I... I don't know. I, what are we gonna do? We're, we're gonna get out of here. That, that's what. They turned and ran for the bulkhead, pushing and shoving past each other as they tried to become one with their inner coward. As they neared the door, one managed to escape the ball of stampeding crew members without being trampled and sprung forward, tossing himself past the door and into the hallway. A robotic voice blared as the bulkhead door shut closed, separating the main group from the one who had run ahead. Unknown knife form detected, locking down Section 3A. The stragglers banged on the cold metal of the door, screaming bloody murder and hurling all sorts of profanity at the AI as they did. You dumb AI, you lock us in with it, but you won't keep it out, you useless hunk of circuit- A loud bellow of the beast brought their attention back to the situation at hand. The large animal slowly approached the group one step at a time, the gleam of hunger shining in its eyes. You could almost hear the collective gulp of the group as they turned to face the animal, each and every one of them shaking in terror. The beast roared, and the scream from the group rivaled the beast's own. Scatter! The captain's door swung open violently, the loud bang of the door hitting the wall making her sit up, ramrod straight in alarm. She didn't even get the chance to orient herself before she was hit with a barrage of words, the near-nonsensical babble of a crew member filling her ears. Captain, the rack escaped containment and is doing us in. Please help. The captain blinked groggily at him, still evidently far too tired to have been having this conversation, having been woken up in the middle of their sleep cycle. You're speaking too fast. Please close down. The rack escaped. The what? Did what? The rack escaped. What? Yes. What do we do? She looked blankly at her crew member, her ears brightening on her head as fear and as her words finally sunk in. Finding no reasonable options left, she did the one thing she never wanted to do. G get him, she stammered out. Him? Jeff! Get Jeff! Tell him I'll pay him 20,000 credits if he deals with it. Surely not. You do remember how much we had to pay him to deal with the last incident. What other choice do we have? I don't plan on being a frack feed, do you? Opening his mandibles to make a retort, he closed it and found that no words wanted to come out. You make a compelling argument, he said, before promptly turning and scuttering down the hallway towards Jeff's room. 
The door creaked as it slowly opened, an insectoid head peeking around the doorway rarely. Seeing the human still asleep in his bunk, he turned the lights on and approached him, tapping him on the shoulder softly with his pincer. Like lightning, the rattle of Jeff's snoring was replaced by a high-pitched squeal as he jumped out of his bed, collapsing on the cold floor of his room. I'm awake! I am awake! He screamed out to no one in particular, his head swiveling like a top before his gaze landed on the intruder in his room. Rital, why the feck are you in my room, actually? Don't answer that. I don't want to know. What? What? You haven't even heard what I was going to say yet. Why are you getting back in your bed? Why? You just woke me up in the middle of the night and I'm not on duty for. He glanced at the clock hanging on his wall. The next eight hours, so scram, you mantis twat. The insectoid stared helplessly at Jeff as he crawled back into bed, snuggling back into his covers. It's an emergency. A loud, faux snore was all he heard. The captain said she'll pay you 20,000 credits if you get up and deal with it. In a flash, Jeff threw off the blankets on top of him, leaping to his feet and standing at attention as he threw an over-exaggerated salute. Senior Engineer Jeff Richardson reporting for duty. What do you need me for? Uh, so you know. Fecking hell, spit it out already. I want to go back to sleep. The rack escaped. Uh, please make it go away. The rack. And I get to deal with it however I want, correct? Will you? Well, would I, uh... I've been asking to play with it for all month. I reckon the thing likes me. I, uh... Even gave me a sloppy lick on the cheek after it tried to bite my arm off. Uh, cheeky bugger. W what So, where is it? The canteen? I hope. If it escaped, I'm taking the evacuation pod out and you can fetch me if you survive. Say less, I've got this. He said as he marched out of his room, purpose-filling his strides. The captain stumbled towards the canteen, rubbing the dust of sleep from the corners of her eyes as she walked in. Turning the corner, she saw the closed bulkhead of the canteen, deep gouge marks marring the plasteel of the door. Beside the door, she saw the beaten and bruised bodies of a crew resting on the wall, most of them visibly shaken and a few curled up into balls, whimpering. A look of concern flashed across her face as she heard the distant mumblings from a traumatized crew. Je Je Jeff hasn't said anything in a while. He, he, he took, took the beast like, like, like it was nothing. Then... They've been silent for a bit. Do you think he's all right? Oh, after that rack as before. I hoped so. Her eyes widened in panic as she overheard what they said, sprinting to the door and punching in her access code, overriding the lockdown. As soon as the door slid open, she sprinted in. Jeff, are you okay? Her words died in her throat as she looked at the sight with wide eyes. A look of disbelief plastered onto her face. The beast was curled around Jeff, its head on his lap, pressing up against Jeff's chest, earnestly asking for more pets. He was more than happy to oblige, giving the large animal a gentle rub in the head, a soft smile on his face. She could only look in and shock as the scene. That's, that's a class A deadly animal. What are you doing? This little puppy, uh, she's harmless, really does remind me of a Doberman at home. He mused to himself. Harmless. She looked around at the surroundings. Overturned tables and benches littered the ground around them. Large claw marks scattered the walls and floor. Is your Doberman a recognized death world the species, and almost three times as big as you? No, but my dog always acts like this, and she's not just any death worlder. She responds to Rose now. She could easily kill you, but Rose loves me. Look at her. As sure enough, Rose raised her head and gave him a lick of the cheek. 
a thin sheen of saliva covering his face. Can I keep her? You don't have to pay me. Her palm met her snout and astounding false, a headache forming at the thought of a large creature trundling around her spaceship and the paperwork that was sure to follow. On the other hand, 20,000 credits was also a lot of money. In fact, it could probably pay for all of the repairs and then some. We'll, uh, talk about it. Can you move her back to her containment chamber now? Not yet. We're still playing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1564. Story number one. Flowerfolk, written by Major Disaster. There is much confusion, panic, and rumors regarding the self-proclaimed humans. I've heard people speak of them in hushed voices, saying that they are a threat. They are not like us. They are not flowerfolk. Some have gone so far as to call them defileless. None of this is true, and I will not stand to let such falsehoods persist. Allow me to set the record straight. We first found them on their homeworld before they developed spaceflight. Having found a new life-bearing planet, the exploration vessel searched for and found the presence of civilization on their world, belonging to a species that called themselves humans. There was advanced life on the world. Then they had to determine which form of life it was. The vessel could not conclude what type of beings the humans were without making contact. There was all sorts of conflicting indicators about their nature. A survey team found a significant military presence on the planet, causing them to fear for the worst. However, they also found evidence of numerous forms of artwork contradicting the implications of dedicated military forces. We couldn't determine from a distance what they were exactly. So we took a risk and contacted them. They were willing to talk to us, and not only that, they confirmed the reports of the presence of art, painting, sculptures, stories. They had just as great richness and variety of culture as any of us. We were happy to inform them that they were flower folk. The rumor that they are not so comes from their initial denial of such a thing. However, they did not know about our classification of creatures at the time. They told us that they were mammalian and not plant-based life forms. So, like any other new race, we had to explain to them the metaphorical nature of the species classification. Species are categorized based on traits that are likened to various plant types that are universally prevalent on virtually all life-bearing worlds. For example, tree-type creatures tend to be large, hulking things that face few threats. However, their lives are somewhat too static to reach full sapience and civilization-creating levels of intelligence. For the humans, an example would be elephants. Grass types are small, exceedingly numerous, but are far too basic to be sapient. All the insects, arachnids, and small vermin and other such creatures on the human homeworld fall under this category. There are a few other categories, but the most important one is the flower type. Flowers across all worlds are considered beautiful things. Some of the prettiest sights of the natural world is the displays given by flowers. Likewise, flower types are the sentient beings who have grown and developed enough that they do not focus on mere survival, but on beauty as well. 
the creation of works of art, not just for pragmatic reasons, but for the purpose of making something beautiful, is what makes the species a flower type. The flower folk make up all the species of the various nations of our space-bearing society. Humans were not publicly recognized as flower folk at first because they did not have a flower name. Although some species still keep their original name alongside their new one, all flower folk are given a new name based on the flower on their world that they best represent. For example, my people are the Milius folk, named after a particularly thin petal flower, which is known for being very short-lived, and its seeds do not grow until the flower that made them expired. Likewise, our species is also known for being rather slender, and while our individual lives are shorter than everyone else's, our young only wake up after their parents have died. Remembering some of the skills and memories their parents had, eliminating the mental infancy stage of growth. Another example is the Kilmalain folk, both the flower and the people, possessing color-changing petals and scales, respectfully. Then... There is the Pankyuk folk. Pankyuk folk is known for being able to genetically intermingle with all other forms of flowers on their world. <clears throat> I hope I don't need to explain further. Uh, moving on, a human had a problem with this naming convention. They couldn't decide which flower represented their people the best. No matter what anyone suggested, there were hundreds of others saying that they were wrong, and some other flowers was better suited. We gave them time but they never reached a consensus in the matter. We were still trying to figure out how to resolve the issue when the Defilers attacked. Defilers. They are the one type of creature that isn't given a pretty metaphorical name like all the others. They don't deserve it. They are those intelligent enough to master space travel, but they are not even remotely civilized. They do nothing but kill and burn and destroy. The only purpose for their existence is to wreck and ravage anything they come across. They take everything beautiful and crush it to pieces, while poisoning the earth so it can never flourish again. They destroy worlds and nations, leaving behind worthless land and barren ruins. The dividers attacked, and we had no choice but to flee. We mobilized as many ships as we could to evacuate as many people from our doomed worlds. Except the humans. While they allowed some to be evacuated, they insisted that they would stand their ground. They didn't stand a chance, but we provided them the technology they requested anyway. They'd need it if they wanted to run away once they realized the harsh, hopeless reality that they were facing. No cultured species can put up a fight against those who focus entirely on war and killing. Some of us lingered during our mass exodus, but the rest of the humans didn't come. We assumed they'd failed to leave before getting cut off and had been wiped out. Tragic, but at least there were still a few of their kind on our ships. Unfortunately, the rear of our fleets had waited too long and began to get harried by the defilers. Unable to lose them, the whole fleet, all that remained of our society, was at risk. But surprisingly, the defilers stopped attacking, turned to face where they'd come from. Pursuing the defilers, a fleet of human ships followed, but they didn't look like our ships. They looked like the defiler ships built for war. They had thick, sturdy hulls, and they bristled with weapons. 
the defiler's ships were smaller and less numerous, and they were crushed. The human ships told us that they had turned the tide, and they were forcing the defilers to retreat. They weren't dead, but they were wounded, and the humans vowed to finish the job if they ever returned. So here we are, moving back into our homes and rebuilding what the defilers tore down. And all these rumors about the humans. And the simple matter is, People don't trust the humans because they don't even have a proper name or an explanation for their actions. If they're a flower folk, what are they called? Why are they so capable of war? Well, I am happy to say, then, that they have finally found a flower suitable to be named after that reflects on their nature. From henceforth, they will be known as the Rose Folk. They are just as beautiful as any other flower. But if you try and harm them, you'll learn a very painful lesson. Every rose has its thorns. End of story. Story number two. Collateral is the favorite kind of damage. Written by Dragonson04. To say that the humans of soul system expressed ingenuity in war was a gross understatement. Well, they followed the letter of the laws regarding conflict. They hardly, if ever, followed the spirit of the laws. They exploited loophole after loophole due to vague wording. In the case of the Articles of War, Section 15, Paragraph 5, no ship shall be armed with more than a sufficient amount of weaponry, not exceeding 100 individual weapon placements, 50 ship-to-ship placements, or 10 weapons considered to be ship killers. So, uh, what did the humans do? They completely abandoned putting weapons on their larger ships. Little more than redundant hull plating stacked on thousands of layers and thrusters at the rear. And then they called it a ship. Some humans called them hammer ships. You can imagine the results. These raw heaps of metal crashing their way through fleets and causing untold chaos. In the Articles of War, section 210, paragraph 23, Natural space debris acts such as asteroids, comets, and similar shall only be used as defensive weapons, either through their natural motions or with the light adjustments from tractor beams or cables. Furthermore, they shall only be used in the end of need, when all other ammunition is meant. So, what did the humans do? They made ships that were reasonably strong against physical and energy-based attacks, but with no weapons at all. Only tractor beams and cables. They were jokingly called Yeet Class by the humans. The end of need requirement was met by having no weapons whatsoever on any of them. They called them Asteroid Chain Shot or Asteroid Bolas, anchoring two or three fairly sized asteroids together with hundreds or thousands of miles of cable and then dragging them along with tractor beams. May whatever you believe in protect you from those. This was once one of the earliest weapons used by humans in defense of their home system. Shortly after they had achieved FTL and were noticed by the larger galaxy, the Bakut learned to never underestimate the humans again. In the Articles of War, Section 1, Paragraph 1, no one fleet shall have the capacity to destroy a planet. So, what did the humans do? They created an individual ship that was capable of doing just that, 
exploring a very old weapon design they called an A-10. They made a very large ship that was at least 90% gun, thereby following the restriction on number of weapons per ship as stated in Section 15, and yet exploiting the restriction to the hilt. To say the revelation caused a stir was rather timid. The articles were older than humans. Everyone had followed them for untold centuries. And now this upstart race begins finding loopholes in what was almost sacred text. I, for one, am slightly intrigued at their ingenuity and their ability to exploit a contract. To me, it seems that the articles are like a line of small obstacles to them. And once they find the way over, around, or through... They'll take it. Report by Lieutenant Kanar Lahia, Tajni Military, written on orders from High Command after the briefing of the discovery of the violations of Article War, Section 1. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1565. The Honorable Ones, written by Mr. Anderson 102. Ambassador Woods sat tapping his fingers against his leg in annoyed anticipation. He'd been waiting for over an hour, and he didn't like to be kept waiting. The Formerian Empire was really trying his patience. Suddenly, a woman walked over to him and signaled that the Council would see him now. He thanked her and walked to where he was expected. The Council chambers were rather smaller than he thought. He'd been expecting a large room designed to intimidate and inspire fear, but as far as he could tell, it was really just a big boardroom, not all that far off the ones back home. One of the speakers seemed to realize that he was there and welcomed him. Ambassador Woods of Seoul, it is an honor to meet you. We have never before seen a race come from so close and yet seem like they came from a place so far. Council member Maluksha was the only herbivore on the council. Her race was known as the Voltalotos, a massive nine-foot-tall race, of which was basically a bipedal moose people. A proud and old race, but still the only herbivores left of the council. Ambassador Woods bowed to show his respect and then addressed the five council members in front of him. It is an honor and a privilege to be here. I thank you for inviting my humble race to these proceedings. The ambassadors had been trying to make a good first impression, but it seemed that at least two of the three council members were agitated. Maybe his opening was too much. Yes, yes, sir. L- let us press on to the matter at hand, shall we? One of the other graces, Woods thought he was an inrecki, responded in a no-nonsense tone. He wouldn't see much of the man due to his ceremonial robe, but this general size and rudeness seemed to fit. Enreki on one of the smaller races, but what they lack in size, they more than make up for in sheer viciousness, with razor-sharp claws that can cut through almost anything, just shy of reinforced steel. Looking very similar to a small bear, they'd almost be considered cute back on Earth. Yes, sir, let's. The woman next to him looked like a cross between a wolf and a dog, with a thick black fur, and her fair share of scars across her face and neck. She looked like she'd seen 100 battles and survived them all. He knew her immediately as a Wikita. The other two didn't say anything, but Woods recognized them from his many years in military intelligence. Rather hard to forget the not-so-pretty faces of the Gilegans and the Morian's genetic cousins, but aside from that, they looked nothing alike, 
one looking like a boar with very sharp teeth, and the other looking more like an eagle with four arms and no wings. You were here before us today to represent your peoples, but as far as this council is concerned, you're just another small species to turn in our shadow. The short and racky said with next to no hesitation and a sinister smile plastered on his face. So if you want to join the council and become a species under its protection, then you'll either have to pay with resources or blood. Now, the only ones without a smile were Woods with an expression of cold determination and the Maluksha who didn't like to see the carnivals bully a new race. But she couldn't do much to resist them herself. Her race had been on the council since the start, but shortly after they'd met with the Wicketer and the Inreki, the council had started to become more carnivore than herbivore, and they certainly meant to keep it that way. Woods had hoped that the council would be better than previously observed, but alas, his hopes were crushed, although not entirely. If I may, council members, I have an alternative offer, Woods said with a straight face and a commanding tone that quieted the room a bit. Oh, ah, what might that be, little one? This time it was the Galagan who spoke up. I offer you a chance for us to get to know each other better before you make us choose between the two ridiculous choices. I'm extending a personal invitation to each one of you to come and visit Sol. We are just finishing production of our first Titan-class ships, and it would be an honor if you were all in attendance. Woods knew that none of the races before him knew what a Titan was, so by all accounts, they were in for a shock. The carnivores and the council talked amongst each other, and after a few moments they came to a decision. We accept your proposal, but we do not see how a race this new to the stars as yours will have anything of interest to us other than the materials of your ships themselves. The Wicketer looked almost confused by the counteroffer, just as the other members, even the Maluksha, but couldn't see any reason why not to indulge the little primate. For the first time since the meeting had started. It was now Ambassador Woods who had a sinister-looking smile on his face. Oh, I'm sure you'll find the trip to be very much worth your while, Councilmember Jaskak, and certainly at the very least one to remember. Fine, we will make the proper preparations, and we will meet at the coordinates of your whole world. These meetings are adjourned. The Council slowly stood up and walked out of their respective quarters to begin preparations, although not the same ones the old Ambassador had been looking for. About a month later, the ships started to arrive, each council member opting to bring their own ship instead of sharing one together. The Inreki and the Wikita had both brought their biggest warships to be intimidating, while the Galagans and the Morians had opted instead for the smaller but significantly faster and more maneuverable ships, each capable of delivering quite a nasty little punch with enough high-powered lasers to melt the Eiffel Tower in an instant five times over. By comparison, the Volato ship was a toy it had next to no visible weapons and was half the size of even the smaller ships brought, but it looked like it was designed to take a hit and still make a speedy escape than it was with dealing damage. Ambassador Woods sat aboard the space station, Hadfield, looking at the command console in eager anticipation. It had taken almost a full month, but finally they were all here and ready for the show. He tapped a few buttons on every council member's popped onto his screen at roughly the same time. Hello and welcome to Sol, also known as Earth. It's good to see you all again. 
I hope your time traveling here wasn't too uncomfortable. Yes, yes. Let us not waste any more time, Ambassador. Where is the so-called ship you wish just to see? As far as our senses can tell, your station is the only one orbiting your world. And what few ships there are couldn't impress a child, let alone this council. The Enraki was always impatient as ever, probably itchy to start their own malicious plans. Apologies, Council Member Verum. We are expecting Tom Kenny shortly. It is taking a longer than we thought for it to arrive. Woods had a hard time holding back his grin, as he got great joy from making the council members wait. Even if he knew that they were up to something, he wasn't worried. Fine, but we warned we do not like to be kept waiting. And with that, all but one of the members signed off, leaving Woods looking at council member Muluksha, with only the slightest of confused looks on his face. She looked like she wanted to tell him something, but refrained. I look forward to seeing your ship, Ambassador. And she was gone. She really wants to warn us. We'll have to take that into consideration, he thought to himself, while inputting a new message into his console. Come on, has got to know about this. Another hour later, and the Inreki had lost all patience. He ordered his ship to move closer to Earth, and the others followed suit. Council members, I see that you're closing the gap between yourselves and Sol. May I ask why? Woods knew damn well why, but he just wanted an excuse to annoy them a little more. Without even responding, once the Inreki ship had closed enough to the gap, two more ships dropped out of FTL, right behind the rest, and then another, and another, until there was a small war fleet heading for Earth, consisting of the original five plus eight more. Woods hailed the Wikita this time asking the same question again. May I ask, what is the meaning of this? It appears you have a small invasion fleet heading towards Earth. His calmness should have been a dead giveaway. They'd done similar attacks on other worlds and races, but none had been so calm during it. It is simple. You are weak. We are strong. We will take your race to use as slaves and your resources to enrich our own. And there is nothing your pathetic species can do to stop us. With that said, she ordered her crew to fire at the space station, Hadfield. But just before the charged laser shots hit the station, they hit something else instead. Admiral Rimmer had been waiting for the Tom Kennedy for exactly the right moment to make his presence known and hostile forces attacking Earth seemed like the perfect time. He ordered his Titan-class warship between Hatfield and the alien forces, and when their lasers hit him instead of the Hatfield, he ordered a cloak dropped and all weapons batteries to begin firing on the lead ship first. The Inreki never stood a chance against four railgun shots landed dead center, cutting through the shields and hull like a hot knife through butter. It was quite the spectacle. Titan-class ships are big, roughly three miles long, with enough firepower on board to destroy a planet five times over, and enough armor and advanced shields to take just about the same damage as well. It was an absolute beast, with four hull-mounted railguns, but unbeknownst to the council races, it wasn't new, and it wasn't the only one humanity had at its disposal. After losing the Inraki council member to the vacuum of space, the Inraki forces seemed to slow down by a considerable amount. Hmm, they don't seem to be good at losing leadership. Something to keep in mind for the future. The Admiral had been taking personal notes on the enemy forces since before the battle even started. 
and he thought, at least for the moment, he'd figured them out. They focused on strength. The stronger you are, the more they feared or respected you. He intended to make them do both. He punched in orders onto his console and watched as three other Titan-class ships appeared out of nowhere, circling the enemy fleet like sharks smelling blood in the water. The remaining ships started to fire on the Titans, but it proved a pointless effort as each of the four Titans' railguns picked a target and simply watched them vanish. The only ships that seemed to be able to do anything against the Titans were the Galegans and the Morians. Although anything simply consisting of dodging and firing pointless laser barrages at the massive ships whose shields were barely even flickering, all it took was one hit each and their ships cracked like an egg on concrete. Once the third council ship had fallen silent, the only ships remaining were the Varatos and the Wikita. The Admiral sent out the message. This is Fleet Admiral Arnold Rimmer of the United Earth ship Tom Kenny. If you surrender, you will be treated with respect and given the opportunity to return home, so long as this sticky little situation doesn't lead into a greater war. One, I have no doubt that you'll badly lose. So what is it going to be? The Vorotos were the first to respond by powering down the few weapons they had on board, not that they'd even fired them, as the Admiral had noted. Suddenly, instead of Tom Kenny making demands, it was the Wikita council member, Juskuk, screaming in anger, We will never surrender to your trickery! You may have fooled us this time, but you will pay! She almost sounded defeated through the yelling. Almost as if deep down she knew that she was wrong, and that it was her race that would pay along with the others for trying to bully every new race they came across. So be it. Bye! Admiral watched as four ships fired a single shot from one of their four hull-mounted railguns, and the Wikita simply ceased to be. The only evidence being bits of space debris and bodies of crew floating in space. Attention, Varados ship. You are about to be boarded. The men who are on their way to take you and your ship prisoner are incredibly well-trained and use kinetic weaponry. So please, for your own sake, please don't resist. My men are under orders to be gentle and take both your crews and ship in one piece. Without even being asked, Malashka sent a message back. Admiral, you and your men are most welcome. Any race who demonstrate the honor that you have shown us today is a friend to the Varatos. Malaksha couldn't believe her own eyes when she first realized her ship was the only one left, even more so when her tactical officer told her that none of the human ships had even come close to firing at hers. True honor, as her people put it, is to know when to kill, and when not to kill. And the humans seemed to demonstrate that quality with near pinpoint precision, having eliminated any ship that fired upon them. She thanked the stars that she'd ordered a ship to hold fire. A few days later, Ambassador Woods was sitting in a large room with two different chairs, one for him and one for his honored guest. The boarding party had been met with cheers of praise more than anything, and the Veritos on board weren't afraid to show their disgust for the other council races and their happiness at humanity's ability to combat them so effectively. Mulaksha had been taken on board a shuttle and been directly transported to the Hatfield of where Ambassador Woods was waiting patiently. Shortly after arriving, Mulaksha had been escorted to the interrogation room where Woods sat. He was looking forward to the next part. End of story.
Tales from Outer Space 1566. We outsourced everything to the humans, written by JCB-112. My fleet was assembled above the human colony of Alpha Centauri Prime, a fleet consisting of the combined powers of the Kingdom of Evite and the Empire of the Independent Colonial Systems. Together, they accounted for over half of the galaxy's total territorial claims, and together, they maintained a standing military that dwarfed humanity's minuscule defense force. This wasn't just an invasion. It was a message. A message to be sent to the ruling senates, congresses, and corrupt representatives of both powers. Their militaries would listen to them no more. So, while an internal coup was underway, so too would half of their combined fleets be acting to claim this quick and easy victory against a third-party independent power. It had been over a millennium since either of their powers had expanded their borders, had cleaned up house, and this was going to good as time as any to do so. It was funny, really. The humans didn't even put up a fight as they entered the system uncontested. As the Grand Fleet parked above their precious second home, a symbol of Earth's power beyond their home system. This was a war that would bring Earth, Sol, and their meddlesome ambitions to rest. Both powers had sent their demands to Earth hours prior to arriving, and received a simple response. You have violated sovereign space recognized by the Galactic Union. Leave now or you will be met with deadly force and fines for these infractions. This is a legally binding affidavit from the United Nations of Earth. They would send the same demands as they hovered above this Ecumenopolis. The message this time was different. By VET and the Imperial Colonial Fleets, we are willing to forgive these transgressions, provided you pay fines damaging to the grand total of 3,791,190.192 credits in unregistered and unauthorized entry fees into territories and spaces recognized as sovereign human territory. For every second that you remain, the amount shall be compounded by, but not limited to, the following. 1. The number of ships present in your fleet. 2. The tonnage and type of ships present in your fleet. 3. The distinction of military, civilian, and civil registration of the ships constituting your fleet. 4. The total number of crew and personnel in said fleet. 5. The type of engine and propulsion system utilized by the ships constituting your fleet. 6. The disruption of the commercial, civilian, and general space-borne traffic of Alpha Centauri and Alpha Centauri Prime. 7. Any civil complaints and suits of damages made by your presence in the system to their livelihoods, business, or inconvenience and disruption to the daily living. Please reply post-haste. The consequences of non-compliance shall be catastrophic for both of our parties. You have 100 seconds to comply. The tension in the control room, the bridges, the tactical conference tables were suddenly broken by unbridled laughter of the general staff leading this operation. So ridiculous was the human correspondence that not a single soul had even bothered to reply to the message. The timer soon ran out, as the message was automatically received as a plain denial of the offer. There had to be wiped, noses had to be blown, and of course, a stern face had to be put on as the soldiers of the landing parties were addressed. On one of the bridges of these ships, on the flagship of the Yvette Kingdom, an admiral would take to the proverbial stage, addressing his soldiers via the ship's PA system. 
Soldiers, today we will be a day of glory and salvation for you all. Today, we test our battle, grind our claws against the soft on the belly of humanity. These fagless, clawless, limp, and soft bipeds shall be brought into the fold. Their people brought to see the strength of the kingdom. The soldiers would cheer, roaring at the announcement as the PA system would suddenly cut out entirely. What, what, what is the meaning of this? proclaimed Admiral Lurian. An event, a species of bipedal, heavily furred mammalian standing, a good two times taller than the average human. His muscle mass spoke to his superior physical prowess as it strained against his combat skin. Sorry, sir. We just got word from Kavaran Technologies has cancelled our contract for that particular subsystem. Uh, excuse me? Yes, yes, sir, we, well, uh, the Senate subcontracted Govan Technologies for our PA system ten or, or, or so cycles ago. Th there's a clause for immediate contract termination where all of their proprietary technologies would be inaccessible until the contract is renewed or renegotiated. That's absurd. That's just the way the outsourcing works, sir. Contact Gavon Technologies, find out why they are doing this in the middle of a fucking invasion, and get them to negotiate table, or I will have the mix- Sir, uh, we've lost all senses. Another ensign spoke up. What? That's impossible. Human e warfare? Ensign, check. No, sir. It's in the middle of a forced update. A forced update? Yes, sir. Let me guess. Gavon Technologies. No, sir. Our proprietary OS is outsourced to Rillian Defense Solutions. Well, get me Rillian Defense Solutions and figure out why our sensors are... Sir, we've lost all our targeting systems. Another panicked voice emerged, this time from the section commander. What the hell do you mean, lost it? Lydrian practically roared out, giving the commander pause before answering as he rechecked his findings. The system locked us out, sir. It says something about a contact violation under the section 378-32002C1A825. It says we violated something or the other and that grounds for immediate suspension of the contract and all proprietary technologies operated by it. It was at this point that the Admiral would attempt to reconvene with the rest of the fleet commanders, activating his communications console, finding out that it, as well, has refused to respond to commands. Comes! If you tell me we lost fleet-wide communications because of some fucking squirreled in claws in some unknown contract by some unknown fucking third party, I swear I will... No, sir. Then what exactly is the problem? Fleet-wide comms and subspace comms are all handled by our state-owned industries. The Royal Communications Companies, uh, it's unaffected. Okay. So what the hell is the issue? Uh, it's the interface, sir. We outsource the control panels and interfaces systems to Viridin Multimedia Services, sir. And let me guess, uh, the contract is somehow terminated immediately due to some unknown violation. Yes, sir. The Admiral would look back to see the rest of the invasion fleet still hovering above Alpha Centauri. Their weapons, their systems, everything that mattered just uh, dead in the water. The power of the kingdom and empire, their swords sheathed and incapable of being drawn. What happened? Was it the Senate's doing? Did they somehow manage to coordinate this massive move, puppeting all of these independent companies to... Another message was quickly received, one that seemed to automatically open itself, revealing its sender as a holographic display of a weak, elderly human. 
It's over, Admiral. Your coup is over. Your fellow conspirators back home fail. Your nation's leadership is demanding your presence back post-haste. You've been cleared to leave. A payment plan has been agreed upon by your governments and my own. You have twenty minutes before we recognize your presence as a second, distinct violation of our territorial sovereignty, and additional fines shall be issued. There was a small pause, followed by a sly smile by the human representative. Should you be unable to leave on your own power due to one reason or another, we shall be forced, under Galactic Union conventions, on the jurisdiction of non-spaceworthy vessels in recognized sovereign territories, to choose one of two options. One, the immediate impounding of your vessels for an unspecified duration of time, whereby we take the responsibilities of sending your passengers and crew back to your respective worlds of choice in a safe and dignified manner. Two, the slow and gradual process of towing each and every one of your vessels out into the international space, whereby an FTL tug of the nation in question us, will provide transport of your ships in a safe and dignified manner back to your worlds of registry. A fine will be issued to the port of registry or the government of origin in case of military vessels for the overall cost of this operation. There was a pause as the Admiral weighed his decisions. Being tugged back into spaceports of registry would mean immediate execution of him and the rest of his mutineering crew upon arrival. Impounding his vessels would leave him and his crew marooned in a port of his choosing, perhaps far, far away from the vindictive set of forces. But that would mean that his ships, the top-of-the-line, highly advanced vessels of war, would be given to a hostile power. It was our preservation or death. He chose the former. All right, Admiral, we will begin the process shortly. Wait, the Admiral quickly interjected, eliciting the human's attention just before he terminated the communique. Ha... How did you manage this? Surely this wasn't just a collection of isolated incidents. Surely humans have some sort of e-warfare suite, some form of espionage, some form of... Admiral, for thousands of years now, humanity has remained neutral. For thousands of years, we have been the galaxy's most reliable and stable hub for outsourced services and technologies. For thousands of years, not a single admiral, general, politician, or civil servant vying for your civil wars or the throne has touched us because of this exact scenario. The human, with an exasperated look, shook his head. Surely he must have known that all of these third-party brands and companies must have been owned and managed by someone. Surely you must have done some homework on this. If it weren't for the entire embarrassing debacle and your intent to harm my people, I would feel genuinely sorry for you, Admiral. People like you belong in a bygone era of solitary polities fighting in a vacuum. The modern battlefield is one peppered with walls that don't involve how many bullets you have, or how many ships you own, or how large of a sword you can swing. It's as much the web of technologies and their associated suppliers required to launch a missile as it is about to the missile itself. If that is all, I shall take my leave. 
Goodbye, Admiral. And thank you for choosing Altani Virtual Connectivity Solutions for your call. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1567 The Word, Not the Spirit, written by Random3x I call the latest meeting of the Prisoner's Escapee Committee to order. Colonel Weathers announced, bringing his canteen down as a makeshift gavel. General Domain, I understand that you have been doing some scouting of the prison, he added, turning to the man who seemed half asleep. Huh? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it can't, can't be done, he said, waving his hand as if to waft away the idea. Not at all, Major de Grant asked. He's mandibles clicking. Yeah, the junk my bastards ran a tight ship. We only know one way in and two ways out. Domain replied with a shrug. And these are, Weathers asked. The front door is the only way in, Domain replied with a smirk. And out. Front door and feet first in a box with your organs and ceremonial jars. Personally, I prefer the former myself, Domain answered, a smirk only crying. Your escape is nil, DeGrand near whined. We can do the next best thing. Make their lives miserable. That is the duty of any officer. Domain answered, weaving his fingers and leaning back in his chair. Impossible! They would just devour you! Legrand said in a hushed snarl. Your bug race might, but these bastards are sticklers for the rules. They won't willingly break any treaty they are part of. The written word is gospel to them, Domain explained, sitting up and fixing the tucknuck with a stare. Gentlemen and gentle bugs, please keep the civil... Sergeant Poole called out, raising himself between the glaring pair. How do you suggest that we annoy them then, sir? He asked, turning to Domain. I got a few plans, but one, if we agree to it, I can get it set up within the week. Domain's eyes gleamed with the promise of mischief. Send what up, exactly? Weathers asked with an arced eyebrow. He still looked over the mountain of paperwork that he had been handed a few days ago. It was a request for the prisoners to have permission to build a simple structure in the center of the exercise grounds. These alone would be of being a simple request, but for them to send 72,000 pages in total, just for this, was shocking. He valued the written word as much as the next of his species, but sending so much and written in human common language made it impossible for him to even imagine successfully translating let alone read it in a weak time frame law dictated he had to find anything that would give him a reason to reject it. What was most frustrating was the front page that highlighted the article in their own law, saying the length of the document could not be used as a reason for dismissal. He had still managed a fair 40% of the submitted document and found no issue. With frustrated reluctance, the alarm that he had set activated and let him know that he had no choice but to approve. With a thump of his stamp, he approved the prisoner's request to rebuild a structure of which purpose he could not fathom in the middle of the exercise yard. We got approval, gentlemen, Domain said with a grin as he slammed an approval document down on the table. So, what is your plan exactly? I know you're like tricks, but to keep us in the dark has been concerning, Brothers asked. Simple, we're going to build our own prison, Domain said with an ear-to-ear -ear grin. But we are already inside a prison, Legrand said, confused. 
Well, observed, but the warden has approved our right to bolt and run this operation. We have even been granted the right to salvage materials from the local area for our needs. Want better materials than the ones containing us. Domain's grin only grew bigger. There were no weaknesses in the prison layout. I suggest we make our own. If they try and stop us, we can flash them this. And the rigid compliance with the word of the law will hamstring them. Domain began to cackle like a supervillain in a Hollywood movie. What's stopping the warden from rescinding the acceptance? Withers asked. Simple. It can take months for the appeals court to rescind an accepted order. We just have to mess up this prison enough in that time frame. Domain's eyes gleamed as he laid out the next steps of his plan. Warden Estelle could feel fresh headache coming on. The one to blame was not only the prisoners, but himself. The simply absurd document that he'd approved seemed to be some ridiculous escape plan by the prisoners themselves. He had seen the request to salvage materials from the local area. He had no issue with the old barracks that he had become more scrapped than anything else being repurposed. But the prisoners started tearing down the walls and using them instead. When his guards tried to stop this, they revealed that it was not an escaped attempt, but merely fulfilling the accepted request. What was most infuriating was the number of humans who self-identified as lawyers who seemed actually to know the entirety of the document he had approved. Anytime he had contested something, they could point to the part where it could stop them. Sending up a rescind order, he was informed that it would take three months to be approved. This was a dire as the prison became less and less secured as the days rolled on. What was crazier was the prisoners seemed to be constructing a small prison. They even took on roles as guards and wardens and such. Had he not witnessed such an audacious act before his very eyes, he would believe that such reports were false. As time wore on, though, he resigned himself to the fact that he would have a black mark on his record. First off, I would like to thank our legal representatives who got their degrees from the MRE serial packet. Weathers announced, eliciting enthusiastic faux applause towards a pair of privates who were hastily editing the document and swapping pages any time the cleaning staff overheard the warden voicing specific plans to stump them. Next up, General Domain, please tell us the next step of the plan, he asked, turning to the general, who now wore a pair of aviators and a poorly sewn hat with wadden stitched on it. Simply, good sir, we, we need to only wait for prisoners to show up, he said, baring his teeth as he chewed his gum noisily. But no one is going to volunteer to go into that thing, sir, Sergeant Poole announced. Exactly, human, the grad snarled. I hope you don't expect me to go in there, he added quickly. Of course not, good sir, Domain's grin becoming maddening. Our friendly guards are going to be our first prisoners. We only need to wait for the rescind to go through, Domain explained as realization began to dawn on those present. It had finally come through. He had been able to get the rescind request expedited, and now had finally sent a cadre of guards to break up the little game of make-believe his prisoners had been playing and return to normalcy. Pardon? A nervous voice came and asked from behind the door. Enter, Estelle said, as the smile expecting that it was his guard with the report of operation had been a success. Thank you, sir. The guard entered, with their head hanging low in shame. What happened, guard? Estelle asked. Master, we went down to the dismantle of the prison, and the prisoners had built end. His voice became a whisper. Speak up, guard! Estelle near barked. Well, 
They cited a detention article 4618, he explained. 46. Surrender weapons upon entry to a secure facility. Nostal shouted in utter shock. Yes, sir, the guard replied, flinching. Corporal Venecka and next door. Well, they both surrendered their weapons and were arrested and imprisoned, the guard explained, avoiding further eye conduct. So we decided to retreat and ask for advice. But it's not a real facility. Nostal nearly cried out. Actually, sir, they technically meet all the requirements for founding one. The god sheepishly replied, Well, I doubt they have. Like a noble must be present and named as a founder of the structure, Nostal listed off. It seems that Tucknuck Major Degrag is a continental noble of his species, so they meet the requirements for that field, the god replied. What about the three needing to be a military presence as guards? Nostal asked. The warden is a famous human general, and the guards are all POWs. Not a single civilian member of staff, as it were, the god explained. Stell could feel the black mark on his record growing larger and larger. Right, gather every guard to me, and we'll approach them and sort this all out now, Estelle roared as loud as the windows began to shake. It had been about an hour since a loud and deep roar echoed throughout the entire prison. The whole group had noticed more and more guards began leaving their posts on the walls. Seems you were right, human, the grad said, looking at Domain. Indeed, though. I didn't think that he'd be stupid enough to call everybody, Domain nodded. I am Warden Estelle, open up and surrender yourselves, Estelle roared at the gate. I'm sorry, visiting hours are twelve to one. You'll need to come back tomorrow to come inside, Domain's voice boomed over the wall of the prison. Nonsense, we cannot allow armed prisoners that violate several articles of the penal code, Estelle shouted back. We're unarmed, sir. We have confiscated the weapons and locked them in a secure storage locker. The prisoners may retrieve their property upon completing their sentence, as your own penal code dictates. Domain shouted back, Insanity! If you refuse to open up, I shall consider this a right and order my men to use lethal force. Estelle felt his patience running thin. These humans and their tucked allies were making a mockery of the law. Very well. Open the gate. Domain's voice boomed as the gate began to open, and a loud clicking noise. Charge in and detain every one of them, Estelle roared. All at once, his assembled guards all ran with rifles at the ready. The moment they were all in, the gate slammed shut behind them. What is happening? Estelle cried out in shock. Don't know. Uh, looks like your prison is understaffed, though, boss, the main said with a cavalier tone as he rested an arm over Estelle's shoulder. Ain't that a violation of penal code? If I recall correctly, if a prison is negligently understaffed, the prison must cease functioning immediately. The main grin shone like a light in the dark. Bah! You were in... Your, your, your voice... Estelle weakly gestured to the prison, where they could hear the guards panicking. Speaker, sister, my friend. We were pleased to find it in one of the barracks we did break down. The rest is just playing with switches elsewhere. Weathers explained as he approached from Estelle's other side. But... Estelle fell to his knees in shock. All right, boys, I want an orderly evacuation from the prison. I believe they have some orbital transport ships around that we can use to get home, Domain announced as he lifted his arm in triumph. How could I lose? Estelle asked aloud. Simple, boss, you were so focused on the letter of the law you didn't notice us bugger the spirit of the law. Domain's mad grin was in full display. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1568 The Guns of Terror Written by Fox Corp 
All refugees report to handling station one. The depressing sound of feet shuffling echoed throughout the station. Human soldiers watched and guarded the seemingly never-ending mass of helpless civilians trying to flee the compound. I was one of those refugees. My home, Ganoxla, was raised by the compound war fleet. I was one of only 1,500 to make it off the surface. Over 2.5 billion were bombarded before they could escape on the space elevators. Humanity, terror, was the closest safe harbor for refugees in the local star cluster. Ganoxla was the fifth planet to fall. In the time it took to evacuate Terran space, another four would be completely raised. Only the tenth planet, Ganox Prime, was able to put up some resistance and allow significant amounts to escape the surface. Of the million who made it off-planet, only around 100 were able to trickle back into the galaxy. Everyone else would be killed, but I knew none of this at the time. We were all tired and scared. Hopefully that human neutrality would be respected. For more than a millennium, humankind stayed neutral throughout every conflict. Humanity grew incredibly rich as a result. Everyone knew investments in humanity would be incredibly stable. Human industry, technology, and their economy were all the stuff of legend. I truly thought that given the human reputation, the compound would stop at the long-respected human border. When alarms began screaming, I realized I was mistaken. A missile had slammed into the loading docks in the station. It was only by standing close to a human soldier that I survived. In his quick thinking, he grabbed onto me and threw me to the ground. When the atmosphere and everything inside it began to be vented out of the station, he held me in place and I was one of the twenty who survived the decompression. Once the soldier realized what was going on, he dragged me to a nearby airlock. His magnetic boots were the only thing that saved me from death that day. His own life too, for that matter. The only reason I survived was a pair of fecking boots. We gotta move fast, ready? The soldier slammed his fist on the door release and the two of us bolted towards the life pods nearby. We joined a large group inside a small escape pod. All of them were human. The doors closed only seconds after I got on. Once again, my life was slaved by the slimmest of margins. The view, it can only be described as surreal. The beauty of Neptune, its swirling clouds and torrential storms of blue, horribly contrasted by the station exploding before my very eyes. So many were killed in such a short time. It's overwhelming to think that I would have been amongst the dead, should have been amongst the dead, so many times. Yet, I survived, my eyes filled with the vision of a lone human corvette fighting an entire compound fleet. The soldier who saved me could only look in rage. Give him hell, Olympia! The vessel fought valiantly against the horde, engines firing with rage. The little ship darted around the compound fire. It decimated three enemies with overwhelming kinetic firepower, ripping massive holes into the sleek an angular vessel assaulting my kind. Three compound ships were torn to ribbons made into unrecognizable heaps of twisted alloy. 
The ship continued its maneuvers for what seemed like hours before it was finally hit by a compound plasma charge. The entire stern of the vessel was melted clean off. The proud and powerful engines turned to slag in an instant. The little ship stopped maneuvering, but could not stop its momentum. The melted hulk plowed past the compound fleet into the greater expanse of the void. Whatever crew remained decided to fight until their last breath. Firing a divine railgun volleys through the ever-furthering void, they managed a few superficial hits before they faded out of visual range. Without the little ship to draw the compound's fire, we became their number one priority target. Plasma charges missed our puny vessel by mere meters, melting away our armor and noticeably increasing the temperature inside our doomed craft. Just then, a message seemed to reverberate through the very void itself. Human neutrality is non-negotiable. Prepare for eviction. As if appearing out of nothingness, an entire human battle fleet emerged from the void. The newfound firepower bore down upon the compound like a hammer to an anvil. Railgun rounds slammed through the hulls of vessels who had only just finished purging my planet. Massive chunks of metal were ripped out of the compound vessels one by one. After such mighty blows, they simply ceased to fight back, transformed by human lead into hulking wrecks, completely gutted and devoid of any means to retaliate. Compound ships attempted to reorganize, firing blind volleys of plasma and missiles into the general region of human vessels. Every shot either completely missed or was absorbed by ludicrously powerful human shielding. The humans began their second assault, even more awe-inspiring devastating than the last. Massive flocks of missiles arose from the massive human ships like an angry swarm of bees, cutting through compound ships like a hot knife. Butter. The destruction was almost hard to watch. Almost. My heart was conflicted by the slaughter. These compound scum had just finished murdering my entire home planet. Yet, there was something so pathetic about the resistance that they could muster. It was like watching a field of grass being cut by a scythe, completely helpless and unable to defend themselves. Some compound vessels tried to fleet into FTL, only to crash into an invisible net of unimaginable proportions. I saw the telltale blinking of FTL drives splitting up, appearing successful for multiple seconds. After ten seconds, light caught up to the current events, and the ship slammed into the human wall, exploding in a vibrant display of blues, whites, oranges, and red. The majesty of the destruction swallowed my mind and distracted me from the gravity of my situation. The killing blow was executed by the massive human battleship. Limitless beams of white exited the spinal mount of the human ship. They connected with their target similarly massive compound supercarriers, architects of destruction of species. I doubted the human's capability to destroy such a ship for less than a second. For that was the time it took for the beam to claw its way through the entire supercarrier. Each surviving compound vessel was gutted from bow to stern in a matter of milliseconds. I never felt more powerless and insignificant in my life. I haven't felt such a feeling since. 
my entire species had almost been eradicated by compound. The single human fleet cut them down like a field of wheat. I jolted in fear when the human soldier placed his hand on my shoulder. You are safe now. His voice showed me that he too felt puny in the face of such madness. His words were as much a reassurance to himself as they were to me. Yet, I was able to derive some comfort from them. Hundreds of compound vessels were turned into molten heaps of scrap in minutes, and I couldn't truly process it. I owe my life to the humans. I just wish that they would have helped us sooner. Testimony of Talon II, lone survivor of the compound of Sultan Genoxla, around 100 Genox citizens survived the war. The compound nearly succeeded in the total eradication of their species. Human peacekeeping actions, as a direct result of Talon's confirmation of genocide, turned human opinion towards intervention in the war. The compound government was tried and convicted of genocide, and a new interim government was established by the galactic nations. Humanity now views intervention in conflicts as its duty in the galaxy. Human interventionists have stopped a total of 97 interstellar conflicts to date. The guns of terror reign supreme, stopping conflicts within minutes and preventing conflicts with the mere acknowledgement of their existence. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1569 The Siren Planet, written by Swift Hound Earth, Terror, the Beautiful Hell, the Siren Planet, whatever you call it, it's a dull, a strange place. The humans mostly use the first two terms, and only jokingly refer to it with the other well-known names. For them, it's just a planet. Their home, a place in which they can go to and from, live and flourishing. They go outside their habitats and breathe the air. They strip down their garments and swim in the natural waters. They run, play, work, travel, grow, and live on that shining gem in the void. Earth, a plain name for a planet that cannot be replicated in its vibrancy. Now for the more interesting names, the beautiful hell, a name as old as humanity's discovery, a name given by the more and slightly unnerved Discovery crew. They picked up radio signals, a good bunch of them, while exploring that part of the galactic arm. They, of course, went closer to see what was causing it. A lost probe, an active probe, some weird interaction between solar bodies, a culture. Whatever produces non-standard radio waves is always interesting, no matter what it actually is. A probe in that sector would likely have been millennia old. To find one still working would have been a small miracle, though not unseen. Their ship turned and raced towards the signals, making better adjustments the closer they got. The ship informed them that they were approaching a heliosphere, which likely ruled out the possibility of probes. It wasn't very possible that such an old relic could broadcast strong enough signals through the effects of a sun. The crew got excited at that. It was either a freaky stellar body producing the signal naturally, or a brand new culture. They dropped out of FTL far away from any of the planets, but just a bit away from the orbit of the last planet. The signals were able to be accurately traced to the now infamous marble. 
The crew became ecstatic. This was a civilization. The dust was cleaned off from the Stelch field and then only used when new civilizations were discovered. They had to gauge basic information and language before making actual contact. It took an entire week for the ship's computer to work out the working translation matrix. Hundreds of them, actually. The humans hadn't exactly unified in anything, not even language. This week must have been like waiting to dig into a cake, but never getting the okay to do so. The wait made some of them insane, I'm sure. Now with a good cargo load of new languages, they went on to translating them. Now on the 200th anniversary of the Krakatoa volcano's eruption, efforts are still continuing in attempting to restart the volcano for scientific and energy needs. The hot magma could provide a stable and cheap power source, while further accelerating understanding of deeper reaches of our planet. A red zone warning has been given to the entirety of the southern Finland. The officials recommend staying away from the highways and driving only if necessary. A total of 55 centimeters of snow is predicted to land on the most of the country, with the negative temperatures of negative 20s. It is imperative to dress warmly for any outside activities. The Mariana Trench submarine has surfaced with all crew in safe condition. Last week's scare as the large part of the submarine experienced a collapse, effectively splitting the crew in two as the midsection crumbled. Emergency tanks luckily began working and slowly lifting the submarine from the nine kilometers it had reached before the accident. The ozone gap has reached a healthy layer just a decade ago, and the effort of the environment has been amazing. With the slowing of the ice cap melting and the efforts to refreeze large areas, global cooling is now being experienced for the fifth year in a row. Many, oh so many broadcasts were heard and translated by the computer. But those are some of the highlights the crew mostly focused on. It seemed like this new civilization was one of science and progress, even if they seemed to be rather nonchalant about disasters and catastrophes. The ecstatic crew began to close in on Earth, all of them curious to find out more. They could already see a large presence of satellites and other such objects flying all through the system. A closer inspection revealed habitats on the moon of Earth. The crew knew that a species that could send their own beyond their own atmosphere could be nothing else except a magnificent addition to society. They approached the planet even further, to the distance of their moon. They could finally get accurate readings of the planet without the possibility of alerting the natives. They shook a little. Tidal storms visible from space as clouds moved at blinding speeds. The ground moved with large plates beneath the crust. The planet would look nothing like it does now in a billion years. They knew that the untranslated parts had to be measurements, but now they had a chance to put them into perspective. Their submarine had reached pressures unimaginable before partly crushing. The crew still survived. It wasn't even immense news, just a part of the daily happenings. The volcano was massive in size. If the humans succeeded, it could have powered half of their world for millions of years without any trouble. Frozen water rained from the sky, in enough volume to cover half a sapient in it, the temperature freezing them in minutes. The readings indicated that the planet had gone through what can only be described as a fever. Temperatures had risen due to the sheer scale of the technological acceleration. The crew decided to risk a pulse scan, a single pulse that could reveal even microbial life. 
Foe, how their skin must have crawled at the readings. Every blasted surface and crevice were teeming with life. Viruses, bacteria, fungal spores were all flying with the wind and rain of the planet. They saw what can only be described as the melting pot of everything that could be a danger to higher life forms. Bacteria and such existed on all planets. They are a very source of life. But this was almost a cruel joke. Everything was on that planet. Every form of bacteria, capable of any sort of thing, just living alongside everything else. A mostly temperate surface with enough climate to support nearly any species, including aquatic ones. A good, strong gravity to host healthy muscle and bone growth. Resources, wealth, energy. Everything a society could want. The extreme weathers, while disturbingly plentiful, could easily be prepared for. The planet even looked beautiful. Green and blue, covering almost the entire planet. They called out to anyone who laid eyes on it. The radio messages drawing the interest of anyone in reach. The beautiful hell. Picturesque in every way to the naked eye. Even perfect if you were to stay for an hour or two. But the bacteria would eventually get you. It could take a long time for a compatible one, but eventually one would pass through your membranes and begin to grow inside you. You might fight it off, but you might not. With the sheer amount of bacteria, you would certainly succumb to one of them, even the humans do, regularly. I make this situation sound more serious than it is, though. Even if it is a very compelling story, quite minimal efforts help to fight the issue when humans travel around. He won't get sick if you don't land on the planet and breathe the air or water. The humans won't infect others either. Everyone leaving the planet goes through a refined process of bacteria replacement. Their bodies are cleaned of the symbiotic and other bacteria, and replaced with ones that cannot multiply without a very specific chemical. Sure, the bacteria can come into contact with you, but it'll die off quickly without a stable source of the... Uh, <laughs> bacterium. Compatible bacteria from normal planets that fit the human biology are also used for more long-term solutions. The humans love to solve problems with indefinite fixes instead of patchwork ones. Interplanetary travel has also begun checking all species for harmful bacteria. Galactic disease expansion has dropped by 58.45%. There now exists over-the-counter bacterial mixes for hundreds of different planets readily available for any human to acclimate. It gives a horrible diarrhea for a week or so, I hear. Earth also provides an excellent study ground for how bacteria develops, and even more importantly, how to fight the rampant bacterial growth that happens in Earth. Earth's bacteria is highly evolved and refined when compared to other life-hosting planets. It would become extremely dangerous if the same phenomena began to happen elsewhere. Earth's bacteria could quite literally overtake a planet, within months if it was introduced. The galaxy's smallest invasive species, so to say. Only travelers from Earth are checked, since the humans have successfully limited the planet's bacteria completely. Other human planets are wholly safe to visit. The Siren Planet, singing a luring melody, showing a beautiful surface, just waiting to make you... A part of the bacterial mass. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1570.
Story number one. What's so great about humanity, anyway? Written by Random3x. I have to be honest. Your race is simply the worst amongst all the sentient races in our land. Reaver slightly slurred, gesturing to the humans sitting across the table from him. Take my race, for instance. We elves live centuries, if not millennia. Reaver paused to give the audible scoff. Well, humans barely manage a century without <laughs> heretical magic. He has a point, lad, Boulder added, slamming his tankard of industrial alcohol under the table. My race is famed for our skill in metalwork and mining. I doubt you'd even hear a human name spoken atop the world of craftsmen. Alien shuffled uncomfortably in his armor as the adventuring party he had been traveling with for years were finally, albeit drunkenly, speaking their minds about his race. What about you, Grell? Alan asked, turning to the dragonborn ally who had been quiet during the entire conversation. I do not hold a negative opinion on humans, but I don't hold a positive one either. My people are a proud and honorable, but many of the humans we have met have been spineless wimps, present company excluded, of course. So, you all think this? Alain asked, looking across the table to which his three companions all nodded. Reaver, do you really think that we are worse than orcs, goblins, and the like? Alain pressed. Yeah, of course. At least those primitive races don't pretend to be higher than the animals they are. Humans are unique in only one way, Reaver answered, looking down his nose at Elaine. You think yourself better simply because you exist, Reaver finished. Elaine could feel his blood begin to boil. He had traveled with this party for years. They had fought through countless encounters, and they had never spoken like this. But as quick as the flames of anger grew, they vanished. In the place... Ice now ran through his veins. Okay, fine. Let's tackle the point you've made, shall we? Elaine asked, with which the party seemed intrigued. Reaver, you mentioned your race's most defining feature. Your exceedingly long lifespans. Elaine gestured to the elf. Indeed. Reaver seemed pleased by this. Tell me, do you actually do anything in these long lives? Elaine's question froze the expression on Reaver's face. From the few elves that we've actually met, the majority seem listless and apathetic. You don't seem to realize your long lives are actually a detriment. How oh dare! Reaver began before Elaine cut him off. Yes, humans barely last a century, but because our time is so limited, we don't faff around, hoping tomorrow will be the day we actually bother to achieve something. Your race is stagnating because you see no point to tomorrow, when you can do whatever it is a century from now. Elaine's words cut deep and left Reaver leaning back in his seat. <laughs> he got you, good elf! Boulder laughed boisterously. You, Boulder, you say that we aren't at the top of the world's artisans. I will concede this much, Elaine said, focusing his gaze on the dwarf. But how many of those masterpieces are actually used? How many are even given sold? We humans don't need one masterpiece when we can fit an army with the standard stuff. Elaine drew his small dagger to demonstrate his point. It was a blade that he had had since he was a child, and it still worked. Now, lad, Boulder began trying to refute Elaine, but was cut off like Reva. And a society that focuses so much on one field and ostracizes those that can't actually make it is a failure of society. 
You yourself bemoaned being kicked out of your home because you were only good at hunting. Yet, you espoused your race's superiority to mine. Humans may not be the best, but we don't limit our options like you. I expect that I am next, then, Growl asked. I suppose so, Elaine nodded. You spoke of pride and honor, yes? Elaine asked, in which Growl nodded. I won't deny humans seem to not always value honor and pride. That is why we work far better than Dragonborn, Elaine declared. Explain how this is the case, Growl asked, his tone calm if not a little curious. Your adherence to such codes make you inflexible and predictable. Think how often a bandit has gotten a hit on you because you strictly adhered to your code, Alan explained. What if their blade was poisoned? What if they killed you? You would die no longer being able to be good in this world simply to fulfill some empty promise only you care about. Humans will abandon codes if they can't be practical. Yes, there are a few outliers who will die as you would, but the majority would rather fight another day than die a meaningless death. Your words hold merit, Elaine. Growl nodded in acceptance, the most positive reaction from the table so far. I'm going to bed. Elaine rose from his feet. But one more thing. We humans know we only pretend to be above animals. We all know full well we are beasts on two legs. The only difference from orcs and goblins is we strive to be better than our bestial selves. With those words, the table was left in silence. End of story. Story number two. The Deja Vu Maneuver, written by Slow AD 2584. Human warships were silly, poorly designed, and antiquated. In the eyes of the other Galantic species, it seemed the humans were sticking to their old ways of water surface craft, having a keel and an up hull orientation, and their weapons were mostly along the port and starboard side, in a series of large, fixed battery cannons of a merely kinetic variety. There were no sensors, guns, or crew stations anywhere along its heavily armored and reinforced keel, revealing a questionably very large blind spot to its vision and fields of fire. All in all, the galaxy laughed at the designs. It was a World War II steel battleship with a Spanish galleon cannon setup in space. Their jump drives were even more archaic and foolish, requiring a hyperspatial GPS point measurement, anchors to be only jumped to locations possible. They could only ever jump to a place a ship has been before at least once. Their ship designs were ridiculous and suffered a whole lot of ridicule. That is, until the skirmish with the Valman pillage cruiser and the galaxy witnessed the deja vu maneuver for the first time. The village cruiser was raucously belligerent as it approached the human colony moon. A human warship, a light patrol cruiser, SS Paladin, a moderate model of the ridiculous design, raced out to intercept the attackers. The village cruiser plasma fire raked the primitive ship from a remarkable distance, but to little effect while the Paladin was approaching keel first, showing only its heavily armored keel face. What was barely scarred from the fire... The Paladin was on a near-collision course with the pillage cruiser, and the Valman raiders prepared for some close combat action with the primitive humans, with savage glee. Then, several strange things happened. One, 
The Paladin pitched bow onto the radar. Two, locked in a jump drive GPS anchor. Three, and actually sped up. The energy signal reading showed a Paladin jump drive and broadside cannons ramping up with energy in preparation. The Paladin raced past the cruiser to one side, the cannons on that side ripple firing large high kinetic shells into the pillage cruiser as it passed at point-blank range, causing shimmering ripples all across the pillage cruiser's shields. The raider guns tore into the unshielded Paladin ship, whose exposed upper decks were only moderately armored. The raider gun turrets barely able to track the Paladin ship as it raced by at such a high relative speed. They were viewed as such newbies at the snack of engagement protocol. The pillage cruiser, shield held, knocked down to about 40%, but the pillager was undamaged. The paladin ship was slightly mangled, several fires smoking out into space. It wasn't a fair exchange. That time. Because then the deja vu maneuver occurred, and the now name for it was made sense because the paladin jumped to its anchor and began at broadside pass. Again, the broadside cannons were perfectly fine under the mangled armor, as they were hardened against this type of abuse, and they were primed and fully loaded, as was the jump drive. This time, the village cruiser turrets found themselves pointing the wrong direction, and wasted precious time traversing back on target. The shields failed midway through the pass, and the human kinetic shells began savaging the village cruiser. His rather lightly armored hull amounting to paper against the muzzle energy the many human cannons could muster. For the paradigm of the warships of the rest of the galaxy over-relied on their shields and kinetic-less energy weapons, resulting in direct hull reinforcement taking a backseat role. The pillage cruiser fire was zorching and burning the human ship as well, but by now the exchange was far from equal, only now the other way. On the third repeat pass, the pillage cruiser endured rapid broadside fire alongst its entire length, racking its hull with jagged holes, pressure loss outgassing, and interior explosions, and it was in serious trouble. It launched its reserved and very expensive torpedoes in desperation, but the torpedoes never found their mark. The paladin altered course slightly before the third jump, torpedoes on its tail, and after an emergency back at the beginning of the pass, its course was now going to pass on the other side of the pillage cruiser, blasting the unshielded ship with its fresh other broadside. Remarkably, some of the anti-ship torpedoes circled around to strike the pillage cruiser, showing the cleverness of the paladin's pilot. After the fifth pass, the paladin altered its course one last time. This time, it emerged on a direct collision course with the mangled and disabled pillage cruiser. It pitched up, and the heavily armored keel of the battle-worn paladin, with its seemingly unnecessary keeble beam edged jutting out from the face of the armor like an old warship keel, now showed its purpose, as the heavily armored cutting edge collided with the pillage cruiser at a chopping 45-degree angle, literally smashing it in half as it went with a blunt, massive axe. The ridicule of their design ended that day. It seems the human technology and design, while still very much limited and primitive when in comparison with the rest, was all applied in the human's particular fashion, revealing the truth of an old human saying, It ain't so much the tool, but the hand and the mind of the person using it that gets the job done.
Galactic Council strategos were struggling to find a method to defend against such a maneuver if hostilities ever erupted against the human warships, as the SS Paladin was a mere Coast Guard cutter version of the human warships. They shuddered in horror when considering the Titanic battlecruisers and, oh god, those odd gigagun deck barges using the same technique. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1571. Story number one. The Vengabus is coming. Written by In Babylon They Wept. Alakan pinched the bridge with his nose. On one hand, certain death. On the other hand, human bullshit. He weighed the options carefully. His self-respect fought tooth and claw with his will to live. The will to live one. It was a near thing, but internal battles were winner-take-all. Packet, we need armor. Send them in. The radio cackled. It was a quiet sound, but still a welcome reprieve from the blistering swarm of beams from the nearby laser gatling. Alakan fished it out of his front pocket, raising it near his ear eagerly. Call sign 8 mode, do you copy? What is your ETA? We're pinned down bad up here. If they can get a second angle set up, we're toast. The speaker crackled again. There was a sound like a horn on the other end. Maybe an alarm. Call sign ape mode. Is your vehicle intact? There was no verbal response back, but a faint chanting could be heard in the background, just beyond the range of his hearing. Alakan cranked the volume knob to max, desperate for any possible information about when the armor would arrive. Instead, he seemed to catch the opening part of some kind of human war ritual. We like to party, we like, we like to party, we like to party, we like, we like to party, we like to party, we like. Then the radio cut off abruptly. He took several deep breaths before pinching his nose again. Fucking humans. The Vengabus is coming and everybody's jumping, New York too. The chanting was back, almost incomprehensibly loud. The Gatlings were ear-splitting on their own, but the human war chant made them seem like whispers in a library. The noise was so loud that identifying the source was almost impossible. It seemed to be coming from all sides at once, a hulking wall of sound. He reached down to shut off his calm, only to find that it was already off. Oh, it must be here then. That would explain the unwarranted assault on his ear holes. He took a peek over the edge of his foxhole and froze. Even by standards of human bullcrap, this was egregious. The tank itself was standard DFP issue. The bright yellow paint job and makeshift stop sign definitely were not. And the speakers looked borderline illegal. Strands of copper wire poked from each of the generator-sized boxes, strapped, welded, and glued to random points all over the chassis. The conductor feeding each of the abominations seemed to be repurposed twinkle lights, cutting zigzags between each box before drawing into the hatch. The Gatling stopped, evidently as taken aback as everyone else on the battlefield. The moment of relative peace was replaced by the insane furore as every gun on the opposite side of the canyon seemed to realize that there was a big juicy target barreling towards them. The tank took the swarm of beans like a champion. Faint clouds of yellow smoke trailed behind the racing vehicle as its makeshift paint job was incinerated. But that was probably a blessing in disguise. 
the wall of noise fell down several notches as one of the Gatlings made a point of targeting the ear-splitting speakers. The tank had been content enough to absorb enemy ammo as it barreled its way towards the middle of the battle. But this was a personal affront. The railgun on the top of the vehicle locked on to the offending turret and began dropping ferroslugs. The first was more than enough to obliterate its hated foe. The other three were just to desecrate the memory. Each shot had an unfortunate side effect of distorting the noise coming out of the speakers. The voice going up like chipmunks with every thump of the Mac. The wheels of steel are turning and traffic lights are burning. So if you like to party, get on and move your body. The Vanga bus is coming. The kinetic slug slammed into the road just behind it. The tank had been going anything less than max speed. It would have been splattered. Any sane tank operator would have launched their smoke cover, changed course and avoided slugs by serpentining. But the maniacs in the tank were clearly insane. The hatches for the smoke cover opened, but instead of smoke grenades getting flung out from the hydraulic catapult, out flew hundreds and hundreds of gleaming chem lights. The laser gatling atop the main cannon opened up. Not at any enemy, but simply while spinning in circles at maximum speed. None of this should have done a damn thing, but the effect was amazing. The lights, the noise, and the now laser effects. The enemy had been trained for what to do in a war zone. But they had no fecking idea what to do at a disco. All it took was one of them to break ranks, and the rest followed suit. Alakan watched in awe as the troops of 80 enemy combatants bolted up the side of the valley, casually pursued by the still smoldering Vengatank, chippily screaming out its war cry as the recorder device on the inside hit a well-planned loop. The Vengabus is coming. 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 The noise blessedly faded to black as both made it over the hill. He climbed carefully out of his foxhole, wiping the dirt from his palms onto the front of his pants when he was done. One of the newer soldiers jogged up to him, as baffled as he'd ever been. Uh, what the hell just happened? Alakan shrugged. Trust me, they don't know either. Fucking humans! End of story. Story number two. Burning Bridges, written by In Babylon They Wept. I am Calro, commander of the Second Armada of the Akabari. We are on our way to a peacekeeping operation in the Pegasus Cluster. Humanity is not our enemy, but you'll be if you continue to detain us in your piss-puddle agrarian star system. Step away from the FTL launcher and no one will die. Remain in front and we will plow through your craft. Either way, you will not stop us. The human freighter, acting as a makeshift gate in front of the launcher, did not move. If anything, it centered itself more in order to get better face to the Akaviri flagship head-on. Then, it broadcast back. Your peacekeeping mission in the Pegasus Cluster is a genocide. Allowing it to happen would be a sin against our ancestors. We may not have the men or the ships to destroy your ship, but we don't need to destroy your ship in order to keep you from the battlefield. Our piss bottle's name is Zion. In time, you would call it home. Galrose barely had time to ponder the nature of that threat when the launcher fired up. 
the EM readings on his ship went mad, and in the brief fraction of a second, he realized he'd miscalculated gravely. He didn't know how many thousands of safety protocols had been bypassed, but the amount of power flowing to the gravitational core in the center of the launcher was easily nine times larger than the maximum rating. A micro-singularity formed within the space lens, and cladding ripped itself off of the hull before spiraling at near-light speed around the artificial black hole. Carlos had always imagined such a catastrophe as something like a fireball, reds and oranges, Lots of shrapnel and clanging. Upon seeing it in person, he realized how foolish that was. Red clothes were for pokers left in hot coals. This was, for one brief moment, a star fueled on steel. It was never going to be orange. It could only be white. The accretion disk condensed further, the energy of the reactions happening near it somehow fueling the gravitational anomaly at the center. His comm system moved into death scream as the material's black body radiation moved past the X-ray spectrum, pure friction converting the material to energy more efficiently than even a fusion reactor could manage. The heat generated finally caused a full structural collapse, the spine of the station melting enough to warp the whole barrel of the launcher around the spiraling singularity, twirling it in loops like a thread around a spool. The reaction was accelerating now. Even without electricity being able to fuel the gravitational collapse, the radiation pressure alone managing to hold the system in a highly fragile state of tensegrity. He recognized the feedback loop that was happening, radiation pulling gravity, gravity fueling radiation, on and on until... There was no air for noise in space, but he could almost imagine a roar of the expanding cloud of ionized metal should have made as it blew past. There it was... The end of the loop. It had run out of matter to feed on, so without the balance of the comprehensive force, it expanded outwards. He was fortunate that this explosion was violent enough to atomize the particles. Even a fragment of the size of a grain of sand would have been enough to take down his flagship. As a lone ion, it could be deflected by some same magnetic field that kept the crew safe during FTL jumps. He stared numbly at the monitor. One-third of the Akaviri fleet stranded in a farming system. Not even a shot fired. He realized that the comm system scream had been replaced with the quiet pulse of the incoming broadcast. He accepted it without question. Too lost to even be angry. Take your time recovering your senses. When you're ready, just send us a message back. We're going to need every hand we can on the harvest. There's no one out there that we can reach out for help after this. It's just... Us. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1572. Story number one. The cat isn't the problem. Written by Perilous Platypus. Get that fucking thing out of here, Folk, or I'm gonna space it and you along with it. Folk gathered the tabby up in his muscled arms and scratched it under the chin. His efforts were immediately rewarded by a rousing chorus of purrs prompting a grin from Falk. Go on, now, Cap. Oh, batty work ain't the problem. Captain Odysseus Paraclina offered both of them a withering glare. Neither seemed to care much. He'd long since lost his grip on Falk. They'd been too much together to be anything less than close. But the fecking feed lion could at least show some respect. Mooching pest that it was. 
Things spent half of its time trying to suffocate him in his sleep, and the other half trying to trip him to death. But Falk was right. The cat wasn't the problem. At least, not today. Half the galaxy was in flames, and spacing a cat problem wasn't going to do much about it. Might make him feel a bit better, though. Though, he doubted, it'll last long. Falk loved that hull spawn almost as much as the ship. So Odd did what he always did. Settled back into his chair with an exaggerated sigh and turned to a more pressing matters, like the aforementioned galaxy burning. What a mess, he said. Falk nodded, his fingers still idly scratching at Battywick's chin. Just getting messier by the day. No end in sight, neither. Shame. Galaxy had a good thing going for it for a bit. Falk offered a grunt in response. Don't agree. Think it was better this way. Odd waved a hand towards the view screen and the map depicting the various battle lines. Half were probably out of date as soon as they picked them up. But getting the general sense of the hotspots was better than jumping about completely blind. Better for us, Falk said. That's some cynical crap, even for you, Odd replied. It is what it is, Falk unceremoniously jumped Battywick on Odd's lap. The cat settled immediately in, paying not a whisker of a bit of attention to Odd's skull while Falk looked on approvingly. But at least we have each other. Falk brushed his trousers, flicked off a few strands of orange hair, and then fell back into the seat beside Odd. Where to next? Hard to say. It's salvage or smuggle. More profit if we go both. But we'll be rolling the dice. No guarantee on what we'll find, and no guarantee on getting a buyer to buy it. Easy if we take a contract. Falk snort, eloquently and succinctly established his views on the subject. Falk wasn't a fan of contracts. That sort of ran with the territory on anyone that had signed over their freedom for a ticket or for hellhole and three squares a day. High price to pay, particularly the grinders Falk came through. They didn't talk about it. Pasts were a great topic for people in their line of work, regardless of how long they'd been doing it together. Last data dump said Essenings were hot around Halva, Odd said, pulling up the galaxy mat. Terran Republic versus the Basil. Doesn't matter who comes out ahead in that. There's something worth having in the racks on both sides. Plasma loops, uh, displacers, uh, light benders, Falk muttered, his eyes fixed on the map. Could be good. Could be death. Ow! Matty Wick's claws dug into Odd's thigh as the tabby began to knead. Don't push your fecking luck, cat. Odd didn't remove the tabby, though, and Battywick continued his kneading unabated. Falk grinned. It's good to see you getting along so well. Back to the topic. You in for Halva? It's going to be a hot hot if we dump her was right. Might catch fire ourselves. Worm for first bird. Early bird gets the worm, Odd corrected him. No early in space, just first. Yeah, well, if we're going to get tactical, no ain't worm either. Space worms on Gorgas 7. Odd began to absentmindedly pet Battywick. Long way between Gorgas 7 and Halver. Bulk nodded in agreement. Long way. He then he grinned. But still worms. Then we go. We go. Odd winced as the claws dug in once more. This cat is a fecking problem. Belk shook his head. Cat is not a problem. Cat can eat early bird. I thought we were going to be the first bird. No. Belk began to flick various switches, pulling up ready readouts from the ship's weapon system. Worm for first bird. First bird for first cat.
End of story. Story number two. The Old God. Written by Slow AD 2584. The Katang Armada approached Earth. The pitifully primitive humans stood zero chance. They barely had AI, no knowledge of slick tor quantum recertainty algorithms that could infiltrate and confront any electronic device or logical device from an orbital distance. No defense fields to nullify harmonic phase laser beams. Nothing of the sort. This was going to be laughable. As the Amada approached low Earth orbit, the Selector electronic warfare began. Within moments, the entire internet, satellite network telecom, and even every single radio circuit board, anything with a silicon transistor, really, was scrambled, dead, inert. The humans were instantly rendered back to the Stone Age, around 1965 or so. All of the craft climbing to orbit fell from the sky. Not a single radar ping nor radio signal was detected. The war was over before it had even started. With their superiority and even better orbital high ground, cleaning up the ground forces would be a grueling but inevitable grind. Those humans down there still had machine guns and swords, or whatever archaic thing they can find that still works down there. The Katang Planetary Assault Logistics Operation began ramping up. Uh, sir, uh, we, uh, uh, we're detecting something. What? How did they even manage to get power? What kind of program data suite are they running? How did the slick dolls miss them? Uh, sir, nothing so advanced as the sort of the data suite. Uh, it appears to be a, um, arc gap pulses, like an electric arc between conductors... The pulses seem to be tuned to bounce along the inside of the planet's ionosphere, detectable on other side of the world. Uh, it seems to be some kind of pattern, a, a uh, signal. Get the crypto guys on it. Where is it coming from? It appears to be coming from somewhere in the middle of the taiga, of what they call northern Russia. Middle of nowhere, sir. Hold on. There was a similar arc gap signal from what they call Montana, USA. There appears to be some sort of, uh, uh, communication going on. I need the crypto teams on this immediately. I want to know what they are saying. Sir, crypto says this communication has no OS, no data library, no resource libraries to raid it. it it's just too, too primitive. Uh, they say that this is nothing they can, uh, oh, look, it looks like it stopped. Ha, huh. they probably ran out of power. <laughs> Probably some monkey on an exercise bike or something, trying to generate power manually or get tired or... Alert! Weapons launched from northern Russia. What? No vehicle should be operating down there. How? It appears to be a cylindrical rocket from some kind. Analyzing a... Hurry on, sir. No electronics, mechanical gyro. And, um... Is that relay logic? Nothing for Slukta to grab onto... The rocket doesn't seem to have enough delta V to truly reach the escape velocity, however. Um, this may be a false alarm. Psh, pathetic! Why even bother? Okay, what kind of weapon is it? Directed energy, kinetic impactor. Give me something here. It's, uh, they're very odd, sir. There appears to be a pulse nuclear device in the nose, but it's a strange design. I bet it's nuclear-pumped X-ray laser. Our energy shield should be able to absorb that. No problem. No, sir. No X-ray laser element anywhere on the device. Nothing technological at all. Uh, 
Just fuel, gyro guidance, and a, a fission reactor? The rocket arced over the horizon and then drifted near the Catan cruiser. Okay, that cruiser there just should be able to get a better look at. Uh, a blinding flash lit up the entire orbiting fleet, alarms blaring on the bridge monitor. As the flash faded, the cruiser was a drifting wreck. A large section of the middle hull was simply vaporized. What in the hell was that? Silence those alarms. Report, what were they alerting? The alarms are alpha, beta, and uh, gamma particle high energy emissions. Uh, high energy free neutrons. Wow. It's a real mess over there. G gamma rays? Really? What in the black could have done that? You said that there was nothing that high tech on board that... Sir... It appears to be a pulsed nuclear device in the nose of the rocket was, uh, w was not contained in a shield in any way. What? Who in the Allfather's own universe would ever make a device like that? Even worse, be willing to ever set that thing off. Oh, uh, what would such a thing even be called? A, a naked fission event? I cannot even imagine such a thing. Apparently so, sir. It appears to have been uh, the device's purpose. Where did it come from, exactly? There was an underground silo in the middle of nowhere, apparently with its own isolated power generators and solid-state mechanical controls. Oh, okay, phew. So it's some sort of Hail Mary end-of-the-world doomsday device. Just one, then. Well, uh, let's see if anybody is alive on the cruiser, and let's get back to... Uh, sir, 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 we, uh, we have a problem. What now? Oh, any... Many more rockets just like the first one, launching from similar self-contained silos buried all over northern USA and Russia. Fleet! Evasive maneuvers! I am sure we can dodge a few... No, sir. Cannot evade these numbers. Just, uh... Just, uh... Oh. Oh, father. Just too many of the damn things. But... But surely we can jump... No, sir. The initial blast had a serious electromagnetic pulse released naked, as you say. All jump drives are out of calibration. We cannot get away in time. How can this be? I need to have a serious talk with engineering, if... Sir, our engineers never envisioned a raw nuclear reaction just set off out in the open like this, next to a running ship, just... just too... Out of the bridge's viewpoint, many, many specks of light flickered on the end of curving smoke plumes arose, arcing around both sides of the globe. It was a swarm, a freaking cloud. <sighs> How many... Final count just completed, sir. Just about 12,000. As the nuclear annihilation started to ripple from the edges of the armada, closing like a demonic claw, in the center was the flagship awaited its doom. The captain had time to send the alert to galactic community in an emergency hyperwave. Th these humans, these monsters! I don't have much time. How could they even conceive of getting a fission nuclear cascade reaction to occur exposed and open? Be warned, this is what they are capable of, and the sheer numbers of the devices. Why would they even need so many? That's enough to destroy their entire planet 20 times over. And they have stored them, maintained an operation for what appears to have been over a hundred years. Something is wrong with them. Something very seriously wrong. I... The hyperwave signal was cut off by a blinding flash and static chaos of interference caused by wild and free nuclear reaction side products shredding the carrier wave.
End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1573. Story number one. Death World Senses, written by Echoing Cascade. Marines, human soldiers are both different. It comes from being Death Worlders, but Marines are something else. Something more. Marines are what the Terran forces throws at impossible tasks. Given enough Marines, time and crayons, even causality and logic inevitably bends to their will. These fearless warriors were walking around the peaceful city on bright sun, clearly terrified. Shira had fought alongside Captain Thorne and his marine squad against the Mosoran pirates. During that time, she had made fast friends with the humans. When they went on leave, that agreed to visit her home planet, Bright Sun, and stay at the Soran capital for a few days. They seemed quite happy on the shuttle ride to the planet, but the second they left the ship, they were on edge. At first, at first I thought it was just their warriors' instincts that had them walking around on high alert, but something is clearly off. Shira had been observing her guests, who were becoming more and more agitated. They'd stopped listening to her explanations and were walking back to back, forming defensive circle, their hands on the weapons. Maybe we should stop the sightseeing and go to the hotel for nourishment. Yes, uh, yeah, yes, that would be good, yes. As they walked towards the hotel, she heard one of the marines whisper, They're everywhere. She didn't understand what the marine meant, but she would soon find out. The meal had lasted all of five minutes. None of the humans ate anything, and she knew from having shared meals with them that they loved talk steak. Some were getting the nerve to grab the utensils when one of the marines sat up with a sidearm in hand and turned around, aiming the weapon at thin air. Touch me! It fucking touched me! It took a bit of convincing, but Captain Thorne managed to calm the man down. We, uh, we need to, uh, rest, yes. Uh, Things will be better tomorrow, yes. Pira was at a loss for words. She simply nodded. She couldn't make head or tails of what was going on. Why did he point his gun at nothing? And why did it seem like the other humans could see what he was aiming at? That last thought remained with Shira as she went to bed. She would have to ask Captain Thought what was going on. She had endured more than what was polite already. In the middle of the night, Shira was woken up by screams. Human screams. She got clothed in a hurry and left her room just in time to see the marines run their shuttle parked behind the hotel. They hadn't even stopped to open the doors on their way. They shoulder-charged through them, and before she could even ask if the Seven Hells was going on, they had left for orbit and docked inside their frigate. Shira ran from her room to the contact of the marine captain. What's wrong? Is is everything all right? Are any of your men injured? The captain answered the holocaust from his quarters. He had a large glass of whiskey in his right hand, and he was looking down at it. There is a... There's nothing wrong, not really. Uh, Maybe. The man was shaking, naked terror oozing from his body. What the hell is going on? What was got you so scared? On our home planet, Earth, our ancestors were prey for millions of years. We have uh, extra senses compared to other races. Uh, We can feel when someone or uh, something is gazing at us. He took a large gulp of whiskey and said, Something. 
We can sense movement on our skin and catch things moving from the corner of our eye. Okay, but what? Ghosts, Shiro. We can see your ghosts. They are in every shadow, behind every piece of furniture, behind every person, and they come out in false at night. The man down what remained of his glass. We had heard stories, even seen things in the battlefield, but we assumed it was just combat fatigue. It wasn't gods. Above. It wasn't. Shiro was confused, but also quite curious. Proof of life after death. This is big. Bigger than big. She asked the question that she would regret for the rest of her life. What do they look like? James Thorne, Marine Captain, who she had seen call an artillery barrage on his own position with a smile on his face, who had charged the Masoran tank with nothing but a combat knife in his hand, looked up at her. He made a face like a frightened child. He cried. Shira followed his gaze and looked behind her for a split second. She saw them too. Humans avoid Saran planets as a rule since the incident. Many humans avoid any facility with the significant Saran population and Shira. Well, Shira never slept again without the help of drugs since that day. End of story. Story number two. Humans are not tree dwellers. Written by Fox Corp. When humanity was first curated some 100,000 years ago, they were a primitive race, few in number, young in age. They were stuck with basic tools and technologies. Living in mud brick houses, humans congregated into small communities. They had only just begun farming and selectively breeding crops. We realized their potential and added them to the list of 250 species with an optimistic outlook. At that time, they were the youngest of all the 250 species. They'd taken their first steps as a species, but hadn't quite mastered anything else. As always, we were hopeful that they would succeed, but catalogued every last living organism on their planet for safekeeping. After another 10,000 years passed, a curator decided to visit the humans once again. Of the 250 species in the Milky Way, humanity was the only survivor. Every other species had wiped itself out with weapons or science projects gone wrong. The curator found a world bountiful with life and progress. Humanity had progressed much faster than the average species in the Milky Way. The curator was hopeful that humanity would stay on the path of progress, but knew that it was unlikely to happen. They acquired databanks of all species, languages, cultures, architecture, and technologies. Should humanity fall, their memory could still live on within our museums and archives. This was the expected outcome. Races with such rapid advancement were the most likely to fly too close to the sun and be destroyed through their own curiosity. After another thousand years, the curator returned only to find an ash-choked land devoid of any obvious signs of life. The curator was saddened, but not surprised. The Milky Way was added to the long list of dead galaxies, and we moved on. This brings us to modern day. Several expeditions to the Milky Way's neighboring galaxies have yielded shocking revelations. The galaxies simply no longer exist. No central black hole, no stars, no planets, no life. Not even a mote of dust 
Within residual radio and subspace emissions, we found only one constant above the chaotic background. Birch. This name was completely unexpected and unknown. No life form within this galaxy had ever developed such a word. Most couldn't even pronounce it. Yet, it was all that remained of this barren void. After searching the archives for many years, we discovered the humans once more. Birch was a standard word in English language. It was simply a word for a tree. After this revelation was made, the journey to the Milky Way began. Upon arrival, it was realized that the Milky Way was still very much intact, but gravitational anomalies. Hopefully, that human had emerged on Earth. Curators swarmed the Sol system. They found a technologically advanced human civilization, no longer the primitive humans of old. No traces of the birch trees, either. After discovering the humans were back in the Milky Way, more searching was done on the gravitational anomaly. The Milky Way had not grown in size, but had completely doubled in mass. All of this new mass was centered around the Milky Way's central supermassive black hole, which had now ballooned to a light year in diameter and over the entire galaxy's worth of mass. Once the curators arrived at the central black hole, they were greeted by a structure of unimaginable proportions. A gargantuan ecumenopolis measuring two light years in diameter made up of the uppermost layer of the birch, after searching through human cultural records, we came across the idea of a birch planet. Thought by Paul Birch, the term birch planet was coined by Isaac Arthur. At the time, it was a theoretical possible megastructure. Now, it is a real structure of even grander proportions. Through the gravitational manipulation, gravity is kept at 9.8 meters per second squared across the entire structure's many layers. The central black hole provides a base gravity and also acts as a power source for the heat sink for the rest of the structure. Innumerable numbers of humans live in this birch world, from what we can learn via scans. It has a surface area comparable to that of multiple galaxies worth of habitable areas. It appears that only the upper layers are used for habitation. The rest of the structure experiences extreme time dilation and as such, is relegated to medical waiting areas, storage, resource extraction, energy production, and general maintenance hubs. This still leaves over 95% of the structure purely dedicated to habitation and the many amenities necessary for such a post-scarcity civilization. Incredibly, 99% of this massive structure is inhabited. Multiple active support rings outside the current structure suggest that the humans are adding even more layers to the birch planet's gargantuan frame. The absolute insanity of this discovery has rocked our scientific community to the core. New efforts are being taken to investigate species who once thought dead. For, if humanity, a dead race, could make such a structure, what else could we have missed? But, as the days of renewed expedition have not yet come, we only know one thing for certain. Humanity certainly doesn't dwell in the trees, but the birch is all-encompassing. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1574 Story number one. Inhuman Experimentation. Written by Echoing Cascade. Professor Dim was making his way to his laboratory. To say that he was out of his depth would be... An understatement. The Empress had given him a mission. The mission had been clear. The mission had been impossible. The mission 
had been stupid. The mission had been suicidal. The mission had succeeded. In order to prepare for the Masoran invasion of Eskador, Dim's people needed to be ready to deal with the Masoran closest allies, humans. So the Empress had given him the unenviable task of getting his hands on human specimen. Knowing full well that it was suicidal to even try, he opted to just get it over with. He approached a human in a bar and asked him if he would be willing to become a test subject. Instead of a quick death, the human had given him a question. Depends. How much? Thinking fast, then offered him a third of his daily research grant, musing that getting a human and keeping him happy would be well worth the credits. Now, here he was, human Greg in tow, entering the lab, and he still had no idea what to do from here. I never thought that I would get this far. Oh, gods. I guess I'll need to pay back the loans I took after all. He didn't have any tests or any idea of what to do, but he didn't have toxins. Very well, let's see if I can kill it outright away and then do some tests on its corpse. Dem took out some of the deadliest poisons in his lab. He poured some clear liquid in a beaker, carefully added but a pinch of crushed leaves on the petri dish, and opened up a seal on the metal jar. Human Greg, could you tell me how do these interact with human physiology? Greg walked forward, sniffed the contents of the beaker, and downed the thing in one go. Alcohol! We drank this for fun! Still technically poison, though. Greg then licked the petri dish. Mint! We make candy with this. Goes great with tea, by the way. The man then tilted some of the contents of the jar into his mouth and ate it, which then resulted in him doubling over and coughing. Finally, a normal reaction. Let me recall just how long until he dies. By the time Dum had started his stopwatch, Greg had recuperated. His eyes were red with tears and his breath labored, but otherwise he was fine. Okay, that was some sort of chili powder. We use it as a spice on our food. Really should have taken so much in one go. Uh, very irritating for the sinuses. Dim was too annoyed to be shocked. Most sentient species had the decency to die when exposed to these poisons. All right, better show him his quarters and come up with an actual testing procedure, I guess. While walking the human to his room, he wondered something. Human Greg, what substance does your species require and what can you not eat? Greg was talking to his sister Sandra via Hollowood. Let me get this straight. You agreed to become a guinea pig for an Ascador scientist. Yup. Sandra sighed, face palmed and looked at her brother's image with murder in her eyes. You have to be adopted. No one in our family is this stupid. Why would... Greg quickly cut her off. 5,000 credits a day, three square meals of steak, fries and a small salad, all seasoned with different combinations of exotic spices, served with alcohol of variable proof mixed with fresh nuts, an image association test once a day, and a bit of blood drawing in one week, and some light exercises every other week. Sandra was left stunned, mouth agape for a moment. Do, uh, do you think that he might need more guinea pigs? Greg put his hands in his mouth and began to make static noises. Can't, can't, can't hear you, you, you're going to lose. I can see you. Greg either didn't hear or didn't care. He continued, go, go, going under, going under a bridge, bridge, M might lose you. They're in a space station. There are no bridges, you dumb son of a... Then the recording stopped. A group of officers seated around the conference table looked at each other awkwardly. 
This recording was sent by Greg Ferguson's sister Sandra to put an end to his missing persons case. A man in Navy uniform made an annoyed grunt and then spoke. Since Ascador did not go through official routes and there is no contract, it is technically a kidnapping. And I don't know about anyone else, but I don't like this whole testing taking place. So I say we rescue his ass, whether he likes it or not. No one disagreed. Dim was finally making headway with his research. After weeks of trying different types of poisons to put in his food, mixing multiple allergy-inducing fruits in his alcoholic drink, he had finally found a chink in the human Greg's armor. Yesterday, during image association, Greg had a violent reaction to a cute holographic video of a pisalt playing with its young. Dim recalled the incident, something about large 3D spiders not being cute to humans, even if they wore choirboy hats. Humans... Being afraid of assaults was interesting. He could work with that. Captain Moreau was annoyed. Well, not really. Annoyed was how she felt when she had to do the laundry after a hard day of work. Now, however, she was in a murdering mood. A couple of months ago, a moron named Greg Ferguson had managed to get himself kidnapped, and it was now up to her team to rescue him. At first, she felt bad for the poor guy, as did the rest of her team, but after reading what was his living conditions were. Fracker commits high treason while making more money than we do and eating like a fecking king. The stealth shuttle that carried her tea was on a landing approach to Ascador Research Station. All right, remember the plan. We find the moron, secure him, destroy any data they got from testing him, and bring him back. One of the heavily armored soldiers raised a hand. Moreau nodded at him. How uh, damaged can he be? Moreau mulled over the idea. He needs to be capable of facing interrogation and have all limbs attached. The soldiers all grinned. They had a lot of leeway. They made their way inside the facility with ease. Security personnel simply dropped their weapons at their approach, while researchers froze like deer in the headlights. They eventually found the main research lab, and while Mouse, the team tech expert, wiped the installation's memory core, the team split up to look for Gred. Captain Moreau found him first. He was in a room looking rather confused at three Ascador wearing what looked like homemade mascot spider suits, slowly advancing towards him, making threatening noises. Oh, for the love of God. The captain kicked the door in and stunned the three spiders. What the hell? Who are you? Why did you do that? Moreau slowly walked up to him until she was face to face with him. We're here to rescue you. Then she pulled out a taser and shocked him until he fell to the ground. When he tried to get up, she tased him again. After he stopped twitching, she grabbed him by the left foot and dragged him back to the shuttle. The small grunts of pain he made while going up and down the stairs put a smile on her face. Four months later, the Ascadors attacked Masoran III. They were crushed by the combined forces of the Masoran and the Terran Alliance. No one was surprised by the outcome of the battle, Though most were confused by the fact that the Ascador troops all wore cowboy hats and sported Spido logos on their armors and vehicles. End of story. Story number two. Nothing to lose, written by Hicks Kem. We were winning, you know, back during the early days of the last aggression. When our species believed it to be the will of the gods that we cleanse the humans of the galaxy. We were succeeding at every turn. We struck at the heart of their territory, 
Disguising our opening attacks as natural disasters, like tectonic upheavals or an unpredicted supernova. By the time they caught on to the idea that they were under attack, we'd already taken half of their resources off the field. By the accounting of any scholar of war within a thousand parsecs, ours was merely a war of inevitability. There was no cause for us to offer mercy to any of the humans, because there would never be a situation where we'd need it as a negotiating tactic. When we had no need for the planet's resources, orbital bombardment would most assuredly eliminate any possible human threats without exemption. On those occasions where a more meticulous extermination was called for, our troops acted with efficiency and distinction. No mercy was ever shown. No civilians left alive as military targets were destroyed. No wailing mothers, uselessly shielding their screeching spawn, were given reprieve. To what end would such an act have aided them? They'd still have starved to death in the empty, burned-out worlds of theirs, if anything. It was more civilized just to finish them quickly. It wasn't until very recently that we came to understand the truth. The gods had not given us a mandate to cleanse the humans. The gods had given us a final test. A chance to demonstrate that we had truly lost any hope of redemption. Had we shown mercy throughout the war, we might have won. But we didn't. The humans saw that we would kill screaming babies and desperate mothers. They saw that we would burn entire worlds of them into ashes. They saw finally that they had nothing to lose. And when the humans have nothing to lose, the only thing they can do is take. I write this now knowing that it will not save my people. The human swarm cobbled together from the wreckage of thousands of sabotaged ships is converging on the last of our worlds. I write this only in the hopes that some other race will know that you cannot ever hope to defeat humans with merciless disregard of life. Because they perfected merciless long before we ever met them. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1575 Story number one. Just another piece of space junk written by Foxcorp. Captain Tyler took a long sip of his caffeinated beverage. This is what you woke me up for. It's 3 a.m. planet side time. The captain has been running low on sleep recently. With the countless patrols and endless drills, there's been little time for rest. Tonight, he was finally able to sleep, dreaming peacefully of his life back home, only to be woken up by the screeching of the intercom. Sir, it is completely alien design. It warrants further analysis. Head research attaché, Jolness, has always been a thorn in Tylo's side, constantly pestering him about insufficient space to think, or not enough research staff. Yesterday, he complained about the lack of radioactive isotopes. Why would a ship full of crew subject itself to continuous radiation? Simply put, Jolness was and still is an annoying part of the ship. High Command won't allow for Tylo to throw the meddling researcher into a life pod and send him away. That hasn't stopped Tylo from seriously considering it. So, 
Look at that big ugly thing. Whatever alien designed it clearly wasn't very advanced. It's worth less than scrap metal, sir. At least let me send a research party to investigate it. I'll also need full control of the ship's scanners for the duration of the mission. Tyler recognized an opportunity when he saw it. Only if you personally lead the expedition from the research vessel. Jonathan seemed to recognize the captain's plan as obviously a little too anxious to get him off the vessel. That, or he didn't care. Yes, sir. I'll leave right away. For the next twenty minutes, Tylo enjoyed the peace and quiet of his captain's chair without interruption. He had almost drifted back to sleep when the high-pitched whine of Jonas's voice screamed over the communications. You need to see this. The captain grumbled and moved over to the sensor monitoring station on the bridge. A small group of bridge officers had gathered around the screen. Get back to your stations, barked the captain. He'd had enough of annoying subordinates for one day. Once he got to the census, he suddenly realized the magnitude of this discovery. That's not possible. The readings on the census indicated that this craft originated before the Big Bang. Isn't it incredible, sir? We've almost reached the object with the research vessel. We'll update you second by second. For the first time in his life, Tylo wasn't annoyed by what the scientist had to say. He could only sit with his jaw open in fascination. One of you communications officers, get high command on the line. They'll want to see this. Yes, sir. But what do I tell them? The captain's consciousness swarmed within his mind, looking for an answer that would satisfy the sheer importance of this discovery. Tell them we found something older than time itself. The research vessel and the ancient alien craft and the data began streaming back to the captain's ship. The alien race had designed the ship B-52 model ZZZZZ-2. It was designed a time so long ago there was more zeros than Tyler thought practical. Sir, Jolda said, this vessel is seemingly physically impossible. How so? The density of its armor should be enough to collapse into a black hole. It is denser than a strange matter by a matter and magnitude. The captain didn't know much about interstellar phenomena. What strange matter? The scientist responded with some general annoyance. It's the densest state of matter before something becomes a black hole. Nothing denser should be anything other than a singularity. The captain was now annoyed. He stated very matter-of-factly, It obviously isn't a black hole. Jonas didn't reply to the statement, only sending out more data in return. It was... Nonsensical. The armor on the vessel seemed to be strong enough to resist the temperature of a star. The captain couldn't believe his eyes. This data can't be right. I've triple-checked the data. The armor seems to be indestructible. The captain took a moment to think, coming up with a totally genius plan. Move clear of the ship. We're going to test its durability. But, sir, that could damn- Get clear! Tylo nodded as his weapons officer the massive forward lance of the battleship charging up with a tremendous whine. The forward lance of his ship was capable of cutting clean through an entire planet within minutes. If the ship truly was indestructible, then they would know soon enough. A beam of pure energy streamed out of the battleship's bow, ripping through space and time. The unstoppable force collided with the B-52. But nothing happened. The beam was fully absorbed as if it was nothing more than a flashlight. The B-52 didn't so much as move an inch. Within the hour, a high-ranking members of the command arrived from the vessel. The battleship moved into closer visual range of the ancient vessel. As they got closer and closer, the captain began to say, 
That's one big, ugly fat. He caught himself and looked around the room. Every member of the high command was staring directly at him. The captain's voice went quiet as he muttered his final word. Fellow. End of story. Story number two. Self-preservation, written by Rosie013. Self-preservation is another of the universal consistence to be found among sapient species of the galaxy. Or just most species in general, I guess. No matter your form, your origin, or degree of sapience or self-awareness you might hold, everyone takes steps to exist just that little bit longer, if they can. There are many ways to do so, too. For most, self-preservation is reactive action, steps taken to avoid a sudden shortening of one's own life. Fleeing predation, sidestepping a thrown object, pulling out of the way of one a crazy driver, that kind of thing. It's the most straightforward interpretation, and the easiest to explain, as it often refers to an individual and the choices they make. They can also be expanded on in proactive form, steps taken in advance to avoid such situation in the first place. Think along the lines of not lingering where predators might be found, or carrying a fire extinguisher in your shuttle despite the chances of ever needing it being astronomically low. Even plants will grow thorns in anticipation of fending off consumers. Sometimes self-preservation is succession and a continuation of a family or species. Having a large number of offspring to ensure a percentage survive to maturity. Spreading out beyond a single biome or localized area. Sometimes even artificial backup copies of yourself in cyberspace. These actions, usually thought out in advance or deep set in biological function, reflect not the survival of the individual, but the individual's bloodline, species, knowledge, technology, and even culture. Most variations of the concept depend on the upkeep activities, good health practices, clean environment, medical intervention where necessary. You cannot flee predation if you are overweight and encumbered or too frail and underweight. You cannot take preventative steps if your thoughts are incapacitated by ill health or distraction. You cannot store your digital version on corrupting or insecure hardware. You cannot spread your leaves if your neighbors are blocking out the sunlight. There are many more variations of self-preservation, but they all ultimately come down to one thing. Applying logic to a situation, present or future, to enable existence to continue for longer than it would without reaction or intervention. So, what happens if you remove logic from that equation? Disaster, of course. The steps taken for self-preservation must be logically matched up against any opposition to danger. There is only one known exception to this, the Homo sapiens species, or uh, humans, as they are colloquially known. The logic of self-preservation still loosely applies to them. They are mortal beings, after all. What truly defines the species is their ability to survive misinterpretations of the concept that would be fatal to others. Through a mixture of ruggedness and adaptability, they can endure errors of judgment that would fatally compromise the self-preservation of others, both personally and as a species allowing them to develop in ways and places that are near mythical to other known life forms. Fail to free a predator? Somehow the human in question survives by turning the situation on its head and becoming its family member. 
airlock malfunction. So long as the human in question can repressurize fast enough, they will survive, albeit at the cost of some very painful injuries. Feeling down or sore, they can and do literally consume preservatives in the form of alcohols to pickle their innards in one of the most insane and literal interpretations of self-preservation. On a larger scale, humans will seek out practically uninhabitable locations to colonize, thus protecting them from any potential competition that may arise from other life forms. By spreading far and wide, the loss of any of these settlements is mitigated on a species-wide level. Ultimately, all species of known galaxy have a natural sense of the concept self-preservation and actively practice it for survival, with the exception of humans, sometimes, when it suits them. End of story. I just quickly want to thank the Tier 5 patrons and channel members, Alithia Barkey, Cam Maxwell, Caspar Arnholtz, Albard and Gaster, Arcadian, Lord Azrakal, and Joachim Backer.